VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you very much for tuning into the program. It's Thursday, July the 13th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, David Williams. Back in the producer's chair after a richly deserved break. We're looking forward to speaking with you this morning on a topic of your choosing. So, if you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial to get in the queue, 709-273-5211. Elsewhere, it's toll-free long distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 8626. So, we had a caller yesterday, a mother of a young football player who was on Prince Edward Island competing in the Atlantic Bowl. We've got an under-16 and an under-18 team in the competition. They opened up yesterday with a couple of losses, but of course, getting to play against a much different caliber of football players. You know, we just started playing football in this province a few years ago. The numbers are growing, not surprising. The NFL, one of the most widely watched and bet on sports in the world or certainly in North America, and the CFL is pretty big. I know it's not very big here, but when I lived in Western Canada, it is absolutely huge. And so, you know, it's one of those things where it's a follow-the-leader kind of thing. So, for instance, there's only 27 universities in the country with varsity football programs. Of course, uh, the Laval Rouge Or with 11 titles, the most ever, defending Vanier Cup champions. There's four Atlantic Canadian universities with a varsity football team. That's Mount Allison, Acadia, St. Mary's, and St. Avex. So they've got that huge advantage on our boys when they, you know, talk about the development of the sport and the concept of follow the leader. And I think it does make a difference. So if you look around different sports, well, it'd be hockey. We've had a bunch of guys make it to the NHL. Baseball and the Frankie Homers and the Michael Learys of the world. Softball, tons of guys from this province and women from this province have played for the national team. Rugby, Rod Snow, one of the great scrummagers of his generation. Now in football, maybe, just maybe, one of our young fellows will crack a varsity lineup one of these years and give someone a chance to follow said leader to the next steps. All right, you know I like to give the sports shout-out. But this is a great story, and this is about a trombonist. Hillary Sims is from Torbay, and she's just been named to the brass faculty as a professor at the Juilliard School in New York City, no less. First female uh, trombone professor in the institution's history. So congratulations to her. As a member of the faculty, she's now automatically a member of the American Brass Quintet. That's an ensemble in residence. It's been at Juilliard since 1987, and get a load of her academic CV. She has a Bachelor of Music from McGill University's Schoolich, uh, School of Music, a Master's from Yale University, an Artist Diploma from the Glenn Gould School of the Royal Conservatory of Music, working towards her Doctorate in Musical Arts at Northwestern University, and a Staff Professor at Juilliard from Torbay. Pretty amazing stuff. All right, this is kind of out of left field, but, oh, left field, good choice. There's more ca- Canadian left-handed golfers per capita than any other country in the world. They think that's because of the prevalence of hockey. Okay, so be it. Notably, it was on this date in 1963 that New Zealand golfer Bob Charles won the British Open at Royal Lytham and St. Anne's, being the first lefty to ever win a major championship. Throughout the course of the entire history of the PGA, only four lefties have won a major. Bob Charles, of course Mike Weir, Phil Mickelson, Bubba Watson. Interesting. And it was on this date in 1908 that the Olympics allowed women to compete for the very first time. That was in the London Games. All right, here we go. So on Tuesday, there was a release of the Towards Recovery Report, the province's five-year mental health action plan. It was first released back in June of 2017 with 54 recommendations. We were told in March, as you know, that the final evaluation, the final report would be delivered in a matter of weeks, and it just got released this Tuesday. 
I read through it, so it talks it lists all 54 recommendations in the appendix and checks against what has been achieved. The minister responsible says the province has made forward strides, but still plenty of work to do, and undoubtedly there is, notably inside the world of long-term access to mental health care. You know, this is a big conversation. It's not that long ago we were talking about one in five Canadians dealing with mental illness. Now we're using one in four, so we know what's going on. And the issue with people's mental health, mental wellness, and mental illness has been exacerbated by a number of things in the recent past, and you know what I'm referring to. So they talk about some of the success areas. And two mental health facilities, one being, of course, built here in the city of St. John's on the health sciences complex, beds in Happy Valley Goose Bay, but the critical question there is, do we have the staff to accommodate these new pieces of infrastructure? Infrastructure is good, but that doesn't mean that we change our approach to mental health, nor does it mean we have the staff to accommodate the needs of the people of the province. Then one of the key focus areas, and the government is not really declarative on whether or not this target has been hit. They were saying a pledge to increase mental health care spending from 5.7% of the total annual health care budget to 9% by April of last year. Not really saying whether or not that target has been hit. Saying that if we're not there, we're getting very close. Okay, but it should be easy enough to break down exactly what percentage of the total, pardon me, the health care bill in the budget is spent on mental health services. Then this is where I think there's some real confusion. So we talk about the additional virtual care, whether it be for your physical health, addictions, and yes, for mental health. So they'll point to certain resources like therapy assistance or the breathing room or bridge the gap. There's been a massive uptake in the numbers of people in the province availing of these virtual care services. Here we go. Monthly calls to the provincial LifeWise warm line listed having increased by over 250% from 450 in 2016-17 to 1650 in 21-22. Paul Din, who is the critic on the health care file, he asked, I think, a really important question. Is that good or bad? So virtual care can absolutely be helpful for the obvious reasons. You can get the care from the comfort of your own home. But the numbers and the surge for people using that warm line in particular, is that an indicator of more and more people in need? Or is it the proof in the pudding of the success of virtual care? So inside that envelope of mental wellness, mental health, mental illness, obviously the government has got to put a keen focus there because it has an impact not just in the one in four, but everyone in their social circles, their family, where they work, so, you know, if you're one of the long-time advocates, Christy or anybody else who'd like to chime in about what you make of the province's checklist regarding the 54 recommendations inside towards recovery, but to get it right is going to be a massive ask and looking forward to speak with you on it. You know, you talk about the impacts on our mental wellness. Cost of living, how do we factor that into assessing the mental health of the province and individuals in the province? and some of the levers that governments have tried to pull to help us cope with cost of living. And then, of course, this morning, price of fuels. You know, it's pretty stubborn stuff. And so for the third consecutive week here in the province, the PUB has jacked up the prices of various fuels. Gasoline up about $0.03. Cents. Diesel with a pretty steep increase of over 4.5 cents. Furnace oil, stove oil up about $0.04. Cents. So it just seems to be absolutely never-ending. And with a new chair at the PUB, We'd hope that we'd get a little further breakdown and analysis of rationale for these increases. Now, in this case, for the third week in a row. And cost of living. So we all know what the inflationary numbers look like and the pressures that's put on individuals and their families. 
And the Bank of Canada, for the 10th straight time, has increased their benchmark interest rate. It's not that long ago, it was 0.25%. And yesterday, they increased it by 25 basis points, or a quarter of a point, all the way to 5%. So, look, the Bank of Canada is not necessarily the enemy, and they have a very obvious role in monetary policy, but the 5% is now feeling kind of punitive. And part of it is the pain is, in some form, on purpose. So those folks who are absolutely leveraged to the hilt with their household debt, and just get a load of this. Like we talked about the number of dollars coming in to service debt on the Canadian average household. But in, at this point in this country, Canadian debt outweighs the entirety of the country's GDP. It's about 107% Canadian household debt compared to the GDP of the entire country. It's amazing when you say it out loud. So what's the impact of this in real life? Just, just put out one example. For variable rate mortgage holders, this is going to be another shock to the system. If you bought a half a million dollar house last year with a 25-year mortgage, had a 20% down payment, your monthly mortgage payment was around $1,700. Now, up at 5% because mortgages, I had to look around. There are some offerings out there that start with a 5, but that's going to change very quickly, I would think. So the, that mortgage went from $1,700 to $2,800. I mean, the, I know why the CMHC has a stress test to ensure that you're able to keep up with increases, but increases from a 17 to 28 is a big wallop. Also yesterday, Governor Tiff Macklem and the central banks have made mistakes. No question. It's not the bank's fault that so many was borrowed when the money was so cheap, almost free, but the mistakes have been quite obvious. Now there's also reference to the impact of foreign companies and the pricing of their goods. No real dig deep from Tiff Macklem, the governor of the central bank, and also talking about the possibility to consider additional taxes on big corporations, you know, based on whatever is excess profits. That is very much in vogue in certain parts of the political landscape here in the country, but it does beg some pretty serious questions. You know, people will talk about food inflation and the grocery chains. You know, even inside the Competition Bureau's most recent report, they say that profits have increased, but modestly, but meaningfully. What both of those references are, not entirely sure. But who gets to be the person that determines what's an acceptable level of profit? You know, whether it be in the fossil fuel industry, whether it be, like for instance, some of the impacts here is about housing. You know, we don't have the skilled tradespeople. The impact of immigration has absolutely increased the, the inflationary pressure. But, you know, who gets to tell me how much a, someone should be able to charge for a two-by-four? Or for a gallon of gas, or liter of gas? So all these references here, it kind of feels like a little bit of pandering as much as anything else. So our s cost of service, our debt, whether it be your mortgage or your line of credit, has indeed taken another smack yesterday from the Bank of Canada. And I'm not trying to portray the bank as the enemy of the people, but for 10 consecutive freight hikes, and I think it's questionable as to what it really means, short-term relief inside the world of inflation. So if we have people who are low-income earners are servicing pretty massive debt inside their home, what's this going to mean? What's it going to mean for employment numbers? You know, Macklem says if unemployment increases consequently taking more money out of the economy because of the demand-side pressures, then that might be good for him and his press conferences to talk about inflation. But is it good for us? Is it good for the economy? Would we rather have inflation at 3% or 35 and more people working 
able to pay their bills to service at 107% of GDP? Or is it simply a feel-good for the bank to get us to 2.5? What's the real-life impact for everyday Joes and Janes like me and you inside of that number? And then even looking at inside the world of food inflation, does anybody really have any earthly idea how to deal with it? Because I guarantee you one thing. A one-time so-called bump in your GST in the form of a grocery rebate, that is the epitome of one time, short term. And whether or not people even spent it on groceries, I think, is a question that some will ask. So we don't really hear from anybody in a position of leadership about what can actually be done here to help spare me some of the pain that I'm experiencing because it's very, very real. All right, so I had my thingy right in front of me. Oh, here it is. Okay, here we go. Let's move on. So it's worth bringing up again the saga of the cursed project on the Grand River that is Muskrat Falls. A couple of things. So we know that they're talking about one unit and the fracture and the vibration may indeed compromise all the units. That one unit, unit two, needs to be fully dismantled. It's fine for the for Hydro to say that, you know, some of those costs will be borne by the uh, companies based on insurance. But there is a distinct feeling of some of these ongoing issues are kind of being glossed over. You know, here we are in 2023 at at least $13.5 billion. Like, I have no idea what the final price tag will be. And then even just the issue regarding the turnbuckles. Now, the Muskrat has long been as much a transmission project as, as it has been power generation. So there's 3,200 transmission towers, which make up the LIL, the Labrador Island Link. How many of those spans have to be attended to with new turnbuckles or turnbuckle repairs? to control the, the span so they don't get into what is a gallop, basically like a jumping rope, which, which will trip the, uh, trip the line. Okay, there's reports that say that each turnbuckle update may cost in the neighborhood of $100,000. I don't know where that number comes from, but Liberty Consulting is offering it. So how many of those spans may indeed need that type of investment to try to control the jump rope galloping that some of the lines have been experiencing? So... You know, it really does feel like these sound and feel and look like bigger problems than Hydro is sort of making them sound to be. And I suppose there's a want for Jennifer Williams to not press the panic button because Muskrat has been the yoke around our neck and yet to be fully materialized in the form of our Hydro rates. And yet that rate mitigation, whatever that is, has yet to be fully finalized, we're also told. But here's a question I will ask. Is... During the LeBlanc inquiry, we found out a lot. Mistakes, miscalculations, sidestep, and blatant incompetence and horrific dishonesty. So there was always reference to some potential for civil action. There was also reference to some matters that had been turned over to law enforcement for further investigation as to whether or not there will be any criminal action taken. So... Look, I don't know exactly who would be in the crosshairs, civilly or criminally here, but there was those vague references to both. Nobody's really been held accountable for anything to do with that project, ever. You know, we talk about government accountability, transparency. It's the go-to pledge on the campaign stump around the hustings. But on this file, has anything ever happened or anybody but anybody has actually been held to account. People losing their job isn't the same thing as being held to account. So on the muskrat issue, there you go. And there's so much to talk about. doesn't matter if I brought it up. If something of interest, regardless if it's a small community matter, the state of the fields at Conception Bay South, to anything that is big 
uh, headline-grabbing information. We'll talk about it on the program. If you're so inclined, we're on Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Email address is openline.vocm.com. Oh, we do have a professor from Upper Long coming on around 10.30, Dr. Michael Geist, to talk about the federal government's ham-fisted approach to online news. So it's Bill C-18. It's called the Online News Act. There's lots of confusion, lots of controversy, lots of questions that are yet to be answered. Dr. Michael Geist is pretty vocal on the subject, so thankfully he's making time for us in the 10.30 segment, and we'll speak with him then. And we'll speak with you right after this. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. One of the stories we didn't touch on in the preamble, but obviously very important inside the world of uh, early childhood education, daycare spaces, and yes, the K-12 system, is the province's pre-kindergarten pilot program. There was the intention to have 35 schools in 28 communities with this program in place. At this moment, there's only 13 licensed sites in the province. This is not a new idea. Dr. David Philpott is a retired university professor, and he was part of a group that pitched a very similar idea as far back as 2010, and again in 2017, join us on line number one this morning to kick off the program is indeed Dr. David Philpott. Dr. Philpott, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Nice to speak with you this morning. Always nice to speak with you. Look, before we get into what people are saying is the pilot program falling short, give us an idea of what the pitches looked like as far back as 2010. Well, the province recognized that we had the poorest model of early child education in 2010 when the early child education report first launched um, uh, we were literally ranked last in the country. And uh, the Jimmy Pratt Foundation, who I was with at the time, began a advocacy move to improve that. And we did. We, you know, we, in 2014, we were the most improved in the country. Uh, but we still weren't there. Uh, we pushed for, uh, for full-day kindergarten, which was very controversial when it came in. And five seconds after it launched, everybody loved it. Uh, and then uh, I went on the task, Premier's Task Force in 2016, and the research indicated that we really needed a two-year uh, kindergarten program that began at age four. And we recommend that junior kindergarten uh, be rolled out across the province. The government at the time accepted that recommendation, began to move forward with that recommendation. Plans were in place to launch junior kindergarten, and COVID hit and sidelined everything. Uh, and uh, we've never gotten back there yet. So, you know, I don't know why this would be controversial. The development of the child's brain by the age of five is about 90% complete. We are talking about also the struggle to find daycare spaces. The goal was to have some 3,100 regulated spaces in the province by 25-26. Describe, in your opinion, sir, the importance of these programs, whether it be the pre-kindergarten, junior kindergarten, because there are some corners of the of the community that says, well, if you have children, they're your responsibility. Five years of age, get into kindergarten, and then you just transfer to that new state of the reality regarding the K-12 system. So talk about the importance of these programs. Well, that, that attitude that, you know, kids are parents' responsibility is terribly misguided uh, and antiquated, thank God, in, you know, in this day and age. Today we recognize that citizens are the community's responsibility. And if we invest in citizens early enough, we get better high school graduation rates, higher levels of post-secondary participation, higher incomes in families, better engaged citizens, and on and on. The research is so strong and so clear in naming the benefits of a high-quality early learning program uh, for young children uh, and a two-year kindergarten program with, uh, with you know, play-based learning uh, and qualified, highly trained uh, educators working collaboratively in schools 
give us the results that society needs, not just family needs. This is not about childcare. Grade one is not childcare, it's education. Technically, yes, it, when schools close for a professional development day, parents realize, oh, it's also childcare. What do I do with the child today? But grade one, grade two, now kindergarten are all seen as vital educational experiences for these kids. And uh, age four is the same thing. No question. So with the research, and you talk about post-secondary participation, lifetime earnings, what have you, is there any need to set up benchmarks or milestones for short-term and mid-term, check in on the, the success of this, or is the research clear enough where we don't need to worry about what it looks like for a four-year-old today when they're 10 years of age? We need to monitor and make sure that we have quality experiences for children. That's the job of principals. That's the job of school districts. You know, they're constantly monitoring that grade two is doing what it's supposed to do. Grade four is doing what it's supposed to do. Kindergarten is doing what it's supposed to do. And, you know, similar responsibilities will be there for the four-year-old, those charged with implementing four-year-olds. So evaluation is central to any educational experience. We have to ensure and keep our eyes on on the prize that this is a high-quality learning experience for these kids. And, of course, you mentioned checking in to ensure each grade level is doing what it's intended to do. And I'm curious to pick your brain on something that I focus on. We don't get much traction on air about it, but... The pandemic threw a wrinkle into all of these things. And without standardized testing, and the publics have gone by the wayside, the way to assess students has changed or modernized, whatever the right word is here. But do you have any thoughts on the concept of learning loss? I read a story in Reuters uh, the other day. They examined test scores from 6.7 million public school students between grade 3 and grade 8 in the United States. The federal government investing some $200 billion to bolster tutoring programs, summer school options. Not sure we've really focused in on it at all in this province. They say in the K-12, well, we understand what grade 4 looked like uh, last year, so we'll accommodate this year. The university said virtually the same thing. We understand and we'll accommodate. But the curriculum wasn't rejigged. And we haven't examined learning loss. Your thoughts? Oh, kids have fallen behind without question. There's kids, especially those on the margins, uh, those who struggle anyway, they are the canary in the coal mines for what COVID has done to us uh, and to, to generations of kids. I mean, look at a child who was born in 2020, who's now three years of age. You know, the, the first three years of their lives have been marked by social isolation, you know, uh, lockdown, bubbles. Uh, don't go near people, don't hug, don't touch, don't kiss, don't be, you know, don't, don't interact. And kids at the other end of the continuum, you know, who are gradu- who started high school, you know, in, in 20, uh, 2020 when the pandemic started, their entire high school experience has been sidelined by COVID. And we know there's an erosion of academic skills. Just ask any first-year university prof, you know, are, are students ready to do first-year university math, first-year university English, you know, what's their science skills like? And they're simply not there. Uh, and the university has scary numbers on that. I'm re- I retired at the start of the pandemic, thank God. Um, uh, but there's, there's a huge erosion uh, that schools have to deal with. And how do, they, how do we do that? Because that was the question I was asking myself and that I posed yesterday, is that we've just changed the way we assess students, whether it be with reading comprehension and or math scores. It used to be there was a real national comparative offered in grade 8. But with all standardized testing seemingly gone away, how do we even firmly grapple with exactly where students are? 
well, it falls to school leaders to make sure that, you know, like that strong evaluation and instructional approaches are in place. I was never a fan of these large year-end uh, summative exams in which you were assessed on the entire year's work on one afternoon in, in June. Uh, uh, there's many ways to evaluate and assess learning outcomes. There's many ways to support learning and measure learning and, and, and ensure kids are meeting the, the curriculum goals that they have. So I'm not all that upset that the large exams are lost. Uh, I think that's actually a good thing, and I think that's writing on the wall. Long, we looked at that on the task force report, uh, but uh, uh, we know what government's plans were at that time to deal with those large exams. Uh, but... Um, so I think it becomes an instructional and curriculum issue which every single educator has to face. If you're teaching grade five right now, you have kids coming in who don't have the foundational base of knowledge and skills that they did have, you know, pre-pandemic. And you have to, you have to help them close those gaps. As a person who is a layperson in this circumstance, not an educator or administrator, does it get further complicated when different teachers with different approaches and different relationships with their students and maybe more and more students uh, inside the inclusive education model, more supports required, do we have a way to, say, for instance, a school on Belle Island versus a school in Harbour Brighton versus a school in St. John's to really understand how all the grade fives are proceeding? Because standardized testing might indeed be a good thing that it's gone by the wayside, but does it take one of the arrows out of the quiver to really have a firm understanding of advancement in different regions, different, sco different schools, and different classrooms? Well, it's an illusion that it was an arrow in the quiver that gave us the assurance of quality. Okay. It was more about kids' ability to take a test on that Tuesday afternoon in June uh, than it was you know, how much they learned uh, across the entire 10 months of the school year. Uh, I, I think it falls back to, you know, to educational leaders that... There's, there's, you know, we don't need a June exam to do that. There's many ways that exams can be very similar. You know, a great four math uh, uh, exam on uh, long division or whatever can look pretty much the same on Bell Island as it does in Cowan Heights, as it does in Hans Harbor. Uh, and, and the curriculum is standardized. The curriculum is highly standardized across the province. And uh, teachers are trained to deliver that curriculum. Uh, and when we, you know, I, I, I spent years doing uh, as, as educational assessments on children in my private practice. And I assess kids from coastal Labrador to, you know, the private schools here in St. John's to, you know, Cornerbrook and all kinds of small and diverse communities across the province and the kids were remarkably consistent you know a great four in Hans Harbor is the same as a great four in Cowan Heights uh, and the, the curriculum is the same the pedagogical practices are the same yes there's this diversity in how teachers teach and how they adapt and how they support and how they facilitate and there's good teachers and there's bad teachers mm -hmm. but the, the the standardization of the curriculum and the pedagogical practices is what should be guiding us not you know a two-hour exam in, in June Fair ball. What do you make of the way classrooms are composed the, these days? You know, inside the inclusive model and additional supports, whether it be reading assistance, student assistance, uh, someone on the spectrum, behavioral issues, all in the same classroom, which sounds in concept to be very good. Then you add in shortage of teachers, substitutes, and otherwise. What do you think that means for outcomes for students? It's one thing to talk about the pressure on the adults in the room, but it's another thing to talk about the outcome for students. Your thoughts? 
classrooms are like communities. If you went into Bowering Park this afternoon and looked at the playground there, you see profound diversity in who's on that playground and what they're doing and how they're interacting and what their skills are. But they're all having fun. They're all engaged. They're all learning from one another. Uh, and uh, they're all moving forward in their development. Classrooms are like mini communities. My community, my neighborhood here where I live in St. John's is very diverse. And that diversity adds to the texture of my life. I learn from that diversity. I am part of that diversity, and I'm a better citizen because of that diversity. Classrooms have to be the same. We cannot raise kids in homogenous little bubbles and think that they're all going to be perfect because of it. They will pay a huge price if those bubbles are homogenous, uh, and they will not be good citizens. So in that context, diverse classrooms, inclusive classrooms, are the only way to go. Agreed. Uh, but it does require all the support needed to be in place on day one and throughout the entirety of the school year, which seems to be a problem for some families in some schools. It's not across the board, as bad as that, I'll say, but it certainly got to, it has to go hand in glove. Your final thoughts this morning, Dr. Phil Pop, before we let you go. Well, I think it comes down to the training of teachers. I mean, teacher training is imperative to this. I spent 40 years in education, and most of those years in leadership positions. I've spent the last 25 years of my career teaching teachers and training teachers, training specialist teachers, training special education teachers and counselors uh, uh, and, uh, and classroom teachers. And you know, in order for us to have a good healthcare system, we have to have highly trained practitioners. In order for us to have a good police system, we have to have highly trained police officers. In order for us to have good communities and healthy, engaged citizens, educated, informed, and prepared to face the demands of, of their lives, we have to have highly trained teachers uh, who have an attitude of, I can make this work. This diversity is a good thing. Yes, they're all different. Some are challenging me. Some are driving me crazy today. But it's my job to support these children in moving forward to the very best of my ability. Great to have you on this morning, Dr. Philpott. Appreciate the time. No worries. Take care. You too. Bye-bye. That's uh, Dr. David Philpott. He's a retired university professor at Memorial University, all things education. That was great. Uh, let's take a break. Money for seniors and whatever you want to talk about. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Leonard, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Morning. How was the morning for you? So far, so good. How about you? Mine is bad, boy, because I'm, uh, i got a lot of things, on, a lot of problems on me mind. I went to the hospital yesterday, uh, 11 o'clock for appointment for 11 o'clock, and then 1 at 11.40. For what I booked, uh, cost me six days to get it lined up, Patty, right? And uh, when I got down there, I went and uh, waited another hour, and I finally got into uh, my main my main cause, Patty, was my knee, right? I had an operation. I had my knee replacement. I had my knee removed seven or eight years ago, right? Have you got me, Patty? I'm listening, Leonard. Okay, thank you, Patty. Because we don't get along too good, you know, by the way. Me and you met in Alberta years ago, and you don't know. But forget that. Anyway, Patty, I, uh, I uh, turned around, and I waited and waited and waited and waited a long while. I finally got into the x-ray room, and they uh, turned around, and they, uh, this this little fella, about 25 or 30 or 40 pounds lighter than me, I'm only around 250, and then he... Uh, bossed me around and pushed me around, and I went on the x-ray machine and rolled over this and rolled over that. I couldn't do it. I got a bad hip on this side and a bad leg from my surgery 12 years ago, removed my knee, and 
and uh, my other leg is getting just as bad, and I wanted to point out what's going on. When it comes to the point pro- final problem, Patty, I points out that uh, doctor down in the Carmel Hospital, uh, she's foreigner, nothing against him, Patty. Now, don't don't think I have Patty, nothing against no dark people or, or foreigners, right? And uh, I turned around and I found out that uh, they have uh, only uh, once on the x-ray. So this doctor I was talking to, I didn't know. They never give no name after these four or five days last week on my phone. cost me about $40 in in long-distance phone calls, and I'm getting a bit of old expense, and that's all I'm getting, Patty, me and me cat. Anyway, I turned around and I... Uh, one of the, I got down to the bottom of the roots of it all, and then when, 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 when I found out that uh, they had me down on the X-ray machine from this doctor, she phoned the phone me five thirty. I wrapped the being on the phone for about uh, two thirty, three hours, and then they told me when I phoned when I phoned seven thirty. Hang on, you'll be there. She phoned me twenty after eleven in the night. Now, Patty, would you like to be up uh, 20 after 11 and you've got to go to work tomorrow and put in your hard day's work? I'm sure you wouldn't, Patty. No. No. What? No, I don't. I wouldn't want to be up at that hour taking the call anyway, on anything. Patty, I turned around, Patty, and I turned around, Patty, and I, uh, I, uh, I turned around and I, uh, what's name, uh, got it on the go, dear, what was going on, and, uh, and, and anyway, uh, I found out that, uh, uh, she phoned. Uh, she phoned eleven thirty and told me. Uh, she told me in, uh, you know, the different languages we understand. Patty right that I don't understand. You don't either. That uh, eleven o'clock and uh, one ter- one forty for uh, the twelfth of uh, July, which was uh, right. Just. Just passed yesterday, right? Right, Patty? Uh, Okay. So uh, I'll I'll let you get to the summary point, Leonard. Go ahead. My point is that uh, I went down there to get my x-rays done, and when I went to get my x-rays done, this fella on the table, he was bossy with me. He was a man about uh, 40-pound lighter, or 50-pound lighter. I could have picked it up and thrown it to the ceiling, but he got a bit lippy with me, and then when I wanted uh, what what I applied, for was my leg from my uh I got a I got a, a bone patty coming out from my from my knee uh from my uh my ankle it's called uh, a chip off the bone patty is that right I'm saying or maybe a bone spur or something okay it could have been a bone a bone spur that's what it is patty thank you and I uh a lot of pain with it and it's driving fluid up to my knee from my knee amputation a few years ago and I told him about that and they didn't do nothing he said I got an x-ray here he said from doctor okay and so Leonard just because I need to take another call what exactly is the point you're making my point is that the hospitals now are not uh, doing no good for us Patty they're turning around and they're taking the calls from the hospital workers that got down there, and the hospital workers that got down there. Patty, why you cut me off so quick, Patty? What are you talking about? I'm talking about all the people in the hospitals and our foreigners. 
You don't know what they're doing. They're going to get you on the phone. Oh, I don't know about that, Leonard. I mean, I think most people, if you're looking for help inside the world of healthcare, I personally don't care where you're from, what you look like, man or woman, color your skin. If you have the professional training and accreditation to help me with whatever ails me, that's good enough for me. It might not be for some. I got a paper that says I'm going to go to go get me this done on. uh, I mean, blood work. Okay. Two, two x-rays on both legs. I go to the hospital. I get on the board, and I get one eye. After waiting about seven or eight weeks and three or four years, really, Patty. Yes, well, I think we've uh, all experienced some. i got to go against you, Patty, because all of a sudden I get one x-ray on one leg. Okay. I got one leg is bad, right. and it's bearing on the good leg. I want to try to get the bad leg a bit better or stay off the good leg, Patty. You understand me, Patty? I... You don't understand you don't understand it, Patty. You, you tell me that uh, every time we talk, which is kind of getting a little bit tiring. To I be never talked to you. You're wrong, Patty. You don't know what you're talking about because you are a good man. You got a lot of business, and you got too much on your on your mind. I never talked to you before about my good leg. No, but you talked to me before and told me I don't understand what we're talking about. Well, no, I, I, I tried to. You know, you you're a good man, but it, uh, okay. You're you're the only man in Newfoundland as far as what you are to have everybody in Newfoundland. I appreciate all that. And certainly that's what not true. What do I do about this hospital job? Uh, I, uh, when your phone okay. down, Fatty, it costs me two hundred, three hundred dollars to go to the hospital back and forth to do this stuff. I'm only an old pensioner. I wish it was working out clearer for you. You understand that? I do understand that. But what I'm going to do is, Dave wants to speak to you. I'm going to put you on hold. And I'm going to take another call. But I hope you're doing okay. All right, there we go. Let's get another one before we get to the break. Let's go to line number five. Zoe, you're on the air. Is the pot up on five, Dave? Good morning, Zoe. You're on the air. Yes, good morning. Good morning to you. Uh, where am I? Uh, in the Trinity Bay area. Okay. And we're trying to have a special project uh, here. Uh, this is through the Winterton Ambulance Service. We cover a fairly large area, but this project uh, can be beneficial to anyone. What we're trying to do is to encourage people to have reflective numbers on their property so that when they need the service of an emergency first responder, that their house or their property uh, is easy to find. This is a, a difficult situation when there are different staff members, staff change, and so on. And so if the numbers on your house are not reflective, it can be a delay in finding that person. So what we're trying to do is to promote this this project. Uh, they can order the signs through the town uh, office here. Okay. And it doesn't have to be just in the Trinity Bay area. Anybody can order these signs, the numbers. And um, all they have to do is uh, contact our town clerk, and she will take their order, and that would be it. They can pay electronically or by cash. The signs are $20, and they will be um, locally made, which is another plus. It is. I think there's been uh, different groups representing first responders that have been talking about this for quite a long time mm-hmm. because time is of the essence. It's exactly. you know, not every paramedic or police officer or firefighter knows exactly the community uh, like the back of their hand. So it's one thing to have the greenhouse past the white picket mm-hmm. fence on m- the main road in Winterton, but mm-hmm. that doesn't mean it's going to be easy to find. So exactly. the numbers just make sense. Uh, those civic addresses, we've been talking about that for years. It's about I time know. all municipalities 
put their heads together and figure it out like the program you're offering for the cost of 20 bucks for a locally made sign that may indeed uh, spare the first responders a few seconds or minutes and get you in time mm-hmm. it'd be great and the signs cost twenty dollars each so and oh by the way they have to be ordered before july the 31st okay so that way when the town clerk presents the order then they'll have how many there it's going well but we really try to encourage people to do this and i think they should because if you sit back and think about it it could be the difference between quite ill or life and death or how extreme people would like to be is up to them but Please yep. consider doing that around the rest of the province because when we talk to paramedics or groups that are representing firefighters and police associations, they make reference to this all the time. So this is something that we should absolutely tackle from every municipality in the province. could be the difference between getting the help and not. Uh, anything else you'd like to say this morning? Oh, they can contact the uh, office. Yep. I'll give you the number. The local number is 583-2010. That's 2010. Or by email clerk at winterton.ca clerk at winterton.ca if anyone wants to didn't or didn't have a chance to jot it down give me a shout i will give it to them good and it says for emt use the password sign because some want to pay electronically so that's that would be their password okay password is simply sign makes sense it's sign right i appreciate the time this morning zoe hopefully it's a big success thank you so much my pleasure Okay. Take care. Bye-bye. Right, bye-bye. Bye. Uh, let's go ahead and take a break. Uh, when we come back, John is there to talk about money for seniors, and then we're talking about story time in school. You'll find out after this. Welcome back to the show. Uh, let's go to line number four. John, you're on the air. Hello. Good Hello, morning, sir. Good morning. Yes, uh, I was wondering, I heard someone say that there's some more money coming down for uh, uh, people uh, with uh, low income. Well, for those who qualify for GST based on their taxes in 2021, there was that uh, so-called grocery rebate. The next bit of money coming that I'm familiar with would be what people call the carbon tax rebate, and that's going to be somewhere between the 14th of this month and the 21st. So the government is asking people to expect it by the end of the month. They haven't given us a firm date, but that's the next pot of money that I'm aware of, John. I see. Do you know how much that might be? It's a floating target based on the numbers of people in the household, uh, number of people in the family, and number of kids, and that kind of stuff. I think if I remember correctly, top of my head, for a uh, a senior living by themselves, maybe I should just get the number so I'm accurate here, John. Why not? Uh, carbon tax rebate. I think it's $181 for a senior living on their own. Very good, sir. Yeah. So I've got it now in front of me, so I'll give you a better idea. Okay, how much to expect in Newfoundland and Labrador? So it's 100. It comes quarterly. It's 164 dollars for an individual, an additional 82 dollars for a spouse or common law partner, 41 dollars per child under the age of 18, and 82 dollars for the first child in a single parent family. So 164 dollars if you are living on your own as an individual. Yes. Okay, sir. I thank you very much for that. I'll let knowledge you have. I appreciate your time. You, have, you too have a nice day, huh? Very same to you. Thanks, John. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Uh, did you say line one to me, Dave? Okay. Let's go to line one. Say good morning to Jesse Wilkins. Good morning, Jesse. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you today? Okay. How about you? I'm doing great. Uh, the reason I called today is we're having our Folk Fest on Shea Heights this weekend. Terrific. Yeah, we have uh, quite a quite the lineup starting off tonight, actually, with a uh, 55-plus uh, kitchen party with uh, live music. 
And then we're moving on into uh, Friday where we have kids karaoke starting at 6.30 where they have access to our stage and sound system uh, to do some karaoke for an hour or two. And then we have a candlelight vigil after that for those that we lost in our community. Fair enough. And I know you unveiled the bench for the four lads lost uh, in the ocean. And that's really, it's, it's quite beautiful, to be honest with you, Jesse. And I'm glad that happened. So the Folk Fest, you know, one thing about the community on Shea Heights, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, is that it's a pretty tight-knit community. So unlike some other pockets of the uh, city, there will be some events, some uh, neighbors will take part on Shea Heights. It seems like every man, woman, and child jumps in. Yeah, you know, we have over 30 volunteers this year wow. that have stepped up to help out. I mean, I don't know many communities that can, you know, put off such a huge event. This event for us is our flagship for our community board. And it seems like every year it goes off so well because of the volunteers that step up and help us out. It, well, it, it does take a massive team. You know, people who attend simply think that, oh, well, this all comes together pretty easily. But there's a lot of moving parts and a lot of people who are going to be Hopefully not too stressed out, but generally speaking, a bit stressed out when the event happens. So when does it start, sorry? It starts in tight, actually, with that um, with our kitchen party, and then it carries on into Friday for our kids' karaoke and then a candlelight vigil. And then Saturday is our main event, uh, where it starts in the afternoon. We have kids with games and prizes and bouncy castles and beer tents uh, for the, later on in the afternoon. And then our music starts, and we have our, our own local talent. And then we also have a couple of headliners that are coming in uh, to help us out in the evening. And it, it should be a great time. We've got running right till midnight on Richard Power Field, uh, right in our community. And on Sunday, then we carry on to an antique car show at St. John Bosco uh, the school, school parking lot at 4 o'clock. And then fireworks at 10 p.m. over in our field again. So... I mean, you know, it's one of the, the big events for our community. It brings everybody together, and uh, you're right. We are very unique up here in Shea Heights. So. Yeah, I love it. So who are the headliners? Um, one second, though. I'll get them for you. No problem. It's uh, the Morrissey and the side, uh, side Attractions. I forget the first name now, but uh, uh, also we have Redline as well. They're helping us out. So there's quite a few. Uh, but the main, the main event is, of course, during the, the day is our, our local local talent, right? Absolutely. You know, the local flair gives it a distinct uh, uh, <laughs> local talent gives it a local flair. Real wordsmith I am here this morning. Uh, Jesse, I appreciate the time this morning. Good luck with it. Anything else you want to say? Do people need to do anything? Is it just show up whenever you see fit? Yeah, you know, come on and enjoy it. You know, we have quite a few great people that are, that are playing for us. I mean, it starts off early with our local talent with uh, Jim Collins and Gary Breen and later on in the evening we have uh, Judith Morrissey and the Roadside Attractions along with uh, Carl Peters, Dave White Steve Howell uh, and uh, Floyd and the boys so we also have Mainline that's on at 6pm Sherry Breen we have quite, quite the event and there'll be music through the whole day Saturday so anybody wants to come we have admission onto the field you can just access the field itself with its kids and the children or if you want you can access the field and beer tent as well with really low low bar prices so uh jesse uh, thanks for the time this morning good luck with it okay thanks for your, uh, putting me on i appreciate it no problem all the best that's jesse wilkins with the shea heights community board let's go to line number three kim you're on the air hi patty how are you okay how about you Good, good. Um, first of all, I hope Leonard gets the help he needs. Me too. He sounds like a real dear. Um, yes, Patty, I'm calling because I'm very concerned. I'm concerned about um, 
what you said on Monday, that you had no problem with drag queens reading to children? Well, what I said, just so people are clear, is that I think most of us, reasonable people, can recognize a line that when it's crossed is completely inappropriate. If there's any nudity, if there's any sexual innuendo, if there's any sexual, uh, sexually provocative behavior or acts, I don't think that belongs anywhere near children or in any school. If it's simply a drag queen sitting down reading a book to a bunch of children, I don't have a problem with that. Yeah, um, well, I wouldn't want my kids anywhere near a drag queen. Kids are very impressionable, and I think it's totally inappropriate. Um, what, what do you think they're, Okay, just let me ask, what do you think they're doing that would be harmful to your child? Well, the very fact that they're wearing afeminine clothes and exaggerated makeup, it, it's um, unnatural, unhealthy, bizarre. Um, some drag queen performers themselves say they have no business to be around young people, children. Well, and those people should not be around children. Right. They, drag queens themselves, some of them say they should not be. Um, there's a drag queen performer by the name of Kitty Demure, and she is totally, he, she is totally against this um, she says their performances away from children are highly sexual and um, she really thinks they should not be near children at all. Um, What stories are they reading? Do you know? Well, they're just reading books that were selected by the teachers is my understanding. Yeah, it would be interesting to know what those books are. Um, And what cost to the school budget is this? Oh, I don't know. When they bring in performers from magicians to clowns to jugglers to whoever, I suppose it comes with some sort of associated cost. I don't know what that number would be, to be honest with you. Um, have you ever seen a drag queen read a book to a bunch of school children? No, and I don't want to. I think the government are intentionally putting our children in harm's way. Just let me take that a step further. So this is where I, I get completely confused with some of the problems that people have, because I, I, I think I was pretty clear. If there's any nudity or sexual innuendo or sexual proclivity or uh, certain types of dancing or behaviors that seem inappropriate, they are inappropriate. But the insinuation is also that teachers, administrators, the school district itself, men, women, of all ages, all with different political views, from liberal to NDP to conservative, because we know the blend of those those relationships inside the world of teachers and administrators is quite obvious. So the thought is that these men and women are getting up, going to school, willfully harming children, willfully putting them in harm's way. That to me sounds outrageous. Like, do, do people really think that the province's teachers have the want to do anything but to help the children in the school? Well, children are very impressionable. And who really wants their kid to grow up to be a drag queen? I don't. And a lot of people don't. We want them to have jobs that help the community. Right. Uh, you know, let's just say... I understand people's concerns. I think in some corners it's exaggerated, and maybe some of that is purposeful, or some of it is maybe just based on lack of information. But if you see a magician, doesn't mean you're going to be a magician. If you see a clown, doesn't mean you're going to grow up to be a clown. So I, I think some of those, the next steps that some people take, might not necessarily be 
anything to do with it. Like, if I go see a, a hockey game, doesn't mean I'm going to end up being a pro hockey player. So th- I think there's just some differences between what they're seeing and what they're being told. If we see some examples where there's nudity in a pride parade and there's children present, I think everyone can agree that's a problem. And we should absolutely yes, do something about that. But if someone yes, comes and to... and why, Patty... I don't mean to cut you off, but why are they chanting, uh, we are here, we are queer, and we're coming for your children? Why are they doing that? Yeah, I've seen those videos, and I don't know how real that stuff is. You know, it's like a lot of things that are floating around. You know, who's done that? For what purpose? Where's the material coming from? I mean, I, I, I try to be very careful to accept things at face value because the world has become very devious and dishonest, and people really have have an agenda that they're willing to drive with things that may or may not be real or based in any type of reality. So I'm careful with those types of things to fall for it. Well, I know I've seen many videos with people saying that, right? Yeah. During a pride parade. And then the naked men, when children are the height of their genitals, how is this allowed? Nobody thinks that's right. I don't think it's right. I've tried to be very clear on that front. I think all right-minded people should have a distinct problem with that. I think it hurts the community. I think it hurts the conversation. But I think that's... Why does it happen, though? Why does it keep happening and nothing gets done? I can't speak to that. I have no authority, Kim. Like, I don't know why it is allowed to happen. It shouldn't be allowed to happen. There's there's, There's criminal charges that can be associated with that so that should be the rule of the day and I don't disagree with your concern on that front but I think that's a different conversation than someone dressed with exaggerated makeup a man wearing a dress reading a book if that's all it is then I think that's pretty innocuous if it goes to the next stage then I think it's a problem but don't you think it's unsettling I mean we're talking about young children I don't think the children think Um, it is Oh, my goodness, I would think so. I mean, to me, I would have nightmares, right? Um, it's just so crazy. And, like, with regards to you saying, like, oh, you went to a hockey game and that doesn't mean you're going to be a hockey player. Well, it's harder to become a professional hockey player than it is to become a drag queen. Well, I mean, I said the same thing about a juggler. So my the point is, is that because you see something doesn't mean it's something you're going to be. And it's the same conversation or similar conversation when we talk about sexual education. Yes, discussions about age appropriateness. I understand that. And, you know, how it's described and everything to do with it. But we're living in a, such a hyper-sexualized world. If we don't think yes, that children... It, why? Why are we living in a hyper-sexualized world? The government is pushing it. Their it's, new curriculum with Soji. I read some of the content, Patty, and it was disturbing. And it's like disturbing for adults, let alone pushing it on middle schoolers or even younger. It's terrible. And there's discussion about lowering the age of consent to 12. No, there's not. This is not. Yes, there is. No, there's not. And what they're trying to do is legalize pedophilia. No, they're not. They're trying. They're trying to make it a sexual orientation, and it's wrong. And our children are at risk. And I'm so very concerned. But Kim, those things, like you say, legalizing pedophilia, not, like, nobody's talking about that. That's not a thing. That's Lord, where they're going. That's, that's where they're headed. Not a, that's not a thing. No one's talking about that. Doesn't matter what political stripe people have. Nobody supports pedophilia. I mean, please. Discuss uh, some of the depravity that is being taught in the schools with this curriculum. Okay, just one second. It's crazy. I don't even think they're physically, humanly possible, what they're telling the kids to try to do. Uh, 
well, I don't know exactly what you're referring to, but well, Soji, the the new curriculum that they're pushing. The issue regarding. Right? Um, pedophilia stuff like I, I don't know how people actually think that but the hypersexualized world is not simply about the government I mean just look at the movies and TV shows and pop music exactly. and the like but that's not the government that's just the entertainment industry because they're why? letting it happen they regulate everything else why can't they regulate that we want the government telling you that you cannot have uh, sexual innuendo in TV and music and in film I mean, that's been forever. Why hey. not? It's not good for that's... anybody. Let it be natural in private. You can't put okay. on a TV show and there's something gross on, yes, right? But that's where we have like, the ability to turn it off. That's, that's the trick with that yes, conversation. Yes, but why have it anyway? It's there to, to shape minds. That's why. Okay. Kim, yeah. I'm really late for the news, but I hope you're doing okay. And thanks for your time. I am doing okay. I'm doing wonderful. And I want to shout out to Dana Medcalf and Ken Windsor for fighting uh, for the, the, our children of this province and exposing Soji. Thank you, Patty, for taking my call. Take care. Okay, bye-bye. Uh, let's take a break for the news. Stay informed and have your say on the news of the day with your VOCM. Join Linda Swain weekday afternoons from 4 to 5 p.m. for an hour of talk and discussion with decision makers and listeners like you. News Talk on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Tom, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you this morning? Doing okay. How you doing? Uh, not too bad. Patty, I was... Uh... I was listening uh, earlier in the car about the gentleman call about the x-ray, and while I was waiting, I was just listening to that lady about drag queens, and I, man, oh man, I sincerely hope she doesn't have any children. You know, we have a, we have a drag queen uh, presentation at the Hub regularly, and, and man, oh man, it's just entertaining. Here's people dressing up as women. It's funny, it's entertaining. My eight-year-old has seen it. He laughs. He has a good time. Uh, <laughs> I'm reminded of, 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 what, 50 years ago when I joined the military, I was a cryptographer with a top-secret security clearance. And the overwhelming majority of the things that I encrypted and decrypted had to deal with the fear that homosexuals would be more susceptible to spying than other people. Now, we know how absolutely silly that is. It's absolutely ridiculous. And the fact that we couldn't allow homosexuals around children and all those kind of things, what an absolute crock. but but that's not why I called Patty. Okay, but just very quickly, is you know the issue issue of protecting children. I don't think there's anybody in the right mind that isn't concerned with protecting children. But the fact of the matter is, children who are victimized by sexual abuse. The, I mean, the stats are pretty clear on this stuff, and the whole concept of grooming and what have you. Ninety percent of children who are ever victimized is at the hands of someone they know. Exactly. Not a random person who read a, read a story. It, it, you know, sometimes fear of the unknown or fear of different just becomes exaggerated to the point where p- 
people dream up worst case scenarios that have not been part of it. If we can all agree that things like nudity in front of children is bad, yes, it is. It, of course it is. If sexual innu- innuendo and provocative behavior is not appropriate in front of children, of course it's not. But I don't think that we're actually acknowledging what's actually happening versus what people think is happening. And that becomes a prob- problematic conversation. It's a tricky one to navigate. But like most issues that are worthy of discussion, they have to be had in public view because if not, then perceptions just continue to grow and to exaggerate and we end up in a much worse place. But I think if we can all agree on one thing, protecting children is the obvious goal for all parents, teachers, administrators, uh, and the community. So I, I, I can leave it at that and we can talk about yeah, whatever's on your mind. Yeah. Like I agree. Like I say like it's like banning a book you haven't read and criticizing a show you haven't seen. Go see it and read the book, then have an opinion. But I'm calling about the, uh, the, the, the the criticism of the healthcare system, and you know, and I'm get to the point where, where I, I fume when I hear about it. We have problems in our healthcare system. We have problems nationally in our healthcare system. Uh, I'm sure you read the news as much as I do, and you've read about the gentleman in in uh, Montreal, the student who went to the hospital. He was there for two days with stomach problems. His parents had to come and get him from Ontario, drive him to Ontario to get him treated where his appendix burst. So those the problems that we're having with delays and waits and things of that nature, are it's a national issue. And it's not just here in St. John's or here in Newfoundland. And, you know, 10 years ago, I was diagnosed with, with cancer. Uh, I was diagnosed quickly. I was treated quickly. And now, knock on wood, uh, when I had my last check there a couple of months ago, I was cancer-free. And I firmly believe that if you're legitimately ill in this province, you'll be treated. And about uh, a month or two months ago, my wife was was, uh, undergoing or she had some stomach issues. And uh, she went, and uh, very quickly she was diagnosed. And the morning at 6.30... She's going in for major cancer surgery. That's how quickly this healthcare system reacts. And she, she, I'm sure, that they will do as good a job as anybody in this this country can do. And I firmly, firmly believe that if you're legitimately ill, if you're sick, if you have cancer, it is diagnosed quickly and it is treated quickly. However, if you're going around with a sprained finger or uh, a pain in the head and things, and you're filling up our our systems, are filling up our, our emergency rooms. Then, yeah, that's causing delays. And I know there's delays of the hip surgeries, and there's delays of eye surgeries, and all of those things. But if you're in a life-threatening situation, this healthcare system will look after you. And I'm not a spokesman for the healthcare system. I used to be on the healthcare board many years ago, but I'm not. And I, at that time, I, I, I know what some of the issues was facing them. But my, oh, my, oh, my, oh, my. You know, I, I hear such criticisms of the system that are just not warranted. Yeah, some, some maybe. But the fact that somebody manhandled you during an x-ray, it, just, it burns me. And I'm sorry to rant and rave this morning, Patty, but I just had to call. And I'm trying and defend the system because we're not doing enough of it. 
once you get in the system, uh, for the most part, it's very, very good. I think some people, when you have a medical concern and it feels like time is dragging and you're not getting the help you need and maybe your symptoms are worsening, then a bit of human nature kicks in where you become angry or frustrated or whatever the right word is. But the interaction that I've had with health, the healthcare system has been positive. Now, I know people are waiting, and while you're waiting, it becomes very, very worrisome. I understand that, and I think that's the, the basis for how people react or the things they say about healthcare is because they're worried, and yeah. I get it. Yeah. Yeah. And I do, too, and I understand that when situations like this. Uh, but again, you know, there's always going to be delays. In, in, in certain procedures in this in this province and indeed this country, but for me, what keeps me going is the fact that I know that if I'm diagnosed with something that is uh, life-threatening, I'm going to be treated and I'm going to be treated quickly, and that's what keeps me going. You know, uh, if, if I have a, a problem that I fall and break my hip, yeah, it may take me a while to get it fixed, or if I uh, have something if I have cataracts on my eyes or things of that nature it's going to take me quite a while to get the surgery for it but not not as in the case of my wife tomorrow morning at 6 30 is getting her surgery uh, those type of things are dealt with quickly and efficiently and effectively and I can't say a single bad thing about the healthcare system when it comes to that I appreciate the time Tom thank you for listening you're welcome take care all right, bye-bye. Uh, let's take a break. When we come back, this is an old favorite caller of mine. Born on the beach, Harbor Round, Leo Seymour. We're going to talk about Leo and whatever else is on your mind right after this. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number six. Good morning, Carmel. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. I just want to sadly announce the passing of Leo Seymour. You know, he was a big listener and contributor to Open Line, and I'm sure his like fellow listeners wonder, you know, about him, and would like to know, you know, that he passed away. It's some months ago now, isn't it, Carmel? No, he passed away actually a few days ago. Oh my! Because people ask me about he Leo. Lost his, wife, lost his wife six months ago. Okay. I'm sorry to hear it. I really enjoyed speaking with Leo. He was one of those, uh, not only no holds barred, but a guy who spoke from an informed position as a fisherman. And he was blunt, but he was fair, and he was honest. And I really enjoyed speaking with Leo. And I hadn't heard from him for quite a while. And I was, I wondered myself, and I've had many people ask me uh, or email me and say, hey, what, what's going on with Leo Seymour? And I didn't have an answer for them. I didn't know. No, no. Well, health problems got involved. Sometimes life throws you a curveball, you know? Yep. And, and I know because, like, I was in McMurray, too, for, you know, like I go to wintertime. Even in McMurray, the older people would come up to you, you know? And even, you said, even if you said you were from Newfoundland, they're like, do you know Leo Seymour? <laughs> you know, like, yeah. He was, like, widely, you know, approved. Like, he was... They liked him, right? They liked him, his way of talking, you know. He was a very knowledgeable man, you know. Yeah. But I thought, like, the listeners would like to know, you know. Sadly, his, his two kids now, on Friday, had to put down both their parents, you know. Because he had their mom cremated, and that they have, you know, their father so quickly. So it's sad, 
Uh, I'm sorry to hear it and my condolences to his children and his friends and those who only knew Leo as a caller on the programs uh, it was especially mm. in Nightline uh, I used to speak with Leo fairly often and yeah. yeah anyway I'm really sad to hear that uh, I had a lot of time for Leo yeah he was a, a really good fighter for the fishermen you know and it came from his heart you know the fight mm-hmm. he fought like, um, but that's okay. That's all I wanted to do. I just wanted to announce his passing so the listeners would know that, you know. I appreciate happened. you letting us know, as sad as it is, Carmel. Thank you very much. All right. Thank you very much for listening. Take good care. Bye-bye. Okay, let's keep going. Let's go to line number three. That's too bad about Leo. Harbour Round. What do you say, Petty Boy? Born on the Beach Boy. Sad. Let's go to line number three. Good morning, Debbie Ryan. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you? Not too bad, I suppose. How are you doing? I'm doing pretty good. I, I'm I'm curious more than anything this morning, Patty. And thank you for taking my call. Um, my mom, you know, who's 84 years old, is a widowed uh, pensioner um, who's covered under the public service health care plan. And recently, um, that plan moved from Sun Life over to Canada Life. Um, and, of course, you know, there was some planning uh, that I, at least that's what I um, thought, uh, in terms of, um, you know, the transition. And back a few months ago, of course, they were asking um, retirees of the federal government to sign up for what they call the positive enrollment. So, of course, I did that. I do my mom's finances and all those uh, things. So I signed her up using the positive enrollment. And, of course, the transition happened July 1st to Canada Life. And since that time, um, we've discovered that the uh, policy numbers, which they have online, are not correct. So these pensioners are unable to get access to their prescription drugs or any dental care or whatever benefits that they're paying in to receive. Um, and I'm just wondering, have you heard anything about this in terms of why this is happening? No, I have not. It's it's pretty incredible. Uh, I would have thought, you know, taking on such a major contract with such a big insurance company that the planning would have been, um, you know, much better. The transition would have been much better. And the Canada Life has given um, people a a 1-800 number to call. And when you call it, it tells you overwhelming um, uh, response is they are their agents are no longer accepting calls like I don't get it there are seniors in our province right now who are uh, spouses of federal government employees they are widowers and uh, can't access their prescription drugs because of this um, mistake is there any way that you could check into this patty and see what you can find out about it sure happy to do it uh it would be most helpful if you could craft an email send it to me at openline@vocm.com. so i hit all the bullets when i try to craft whether it be an interview with a politician and or an email to get some clarification so if you do that for me i'll do that much for you Absolutely. I've called um, both uh, Joanne Thompson, who is uh, my MP in St. John's East, and I've also reached out to Shamans, but uh, they're probably, you know, uh, on vacation and I haven't heard anything back. So anything you can do, I would truly appreciate it, and I will send you that email. Please do, and I'll follow up, Debbie. No problem. Thank you so much, Patty. Enjoy the rest of your day. The very same to you. Thanks for the time. 
Okay. Take bye care. Bye bye. Okay, let's uh, take a break because we've invited a guest on. His name is uh, Dr. Michael Geist. He's the Canada Research Chair in Internet and E-Commerce Law at the University of Ottawa, member of the Centre for Law, Technology and Society. We're talking about the Online News Act. So Bill C-18 is certainly a ham-fisted approach to try to get the so-called tech giants, the Googles and the Medias of the world, to pay for Canadian-generated media content. There's uh, examples we can look at down in Australia, for instance, where there was a game of chicken that had happened. Uh, the minister responsible in this country is Pablo Rodriguez. He's seemingly surprised with the pushback from Google and Meta, both at different severities. But Dr. Michael Geist up after this to talk about online news legislation. Don't go away. Your voice in Newfoundland and Labrador's biggest conversation. If you want to know what's happening in your province, tune in to Open Line every day. Have your say weekday morning starting at 9 a.m. on Open Line with Patty Daly on your VOCM. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number five and say good morning to our guests to talk about Bill C-18. That's the Online News Act. That's Dr. Michael Geist. Dr. Geist, you're on the air. Oh, hi. Thanks so much for having me. Happy to have you on. I, I do indeed follow your postings on these issues, whether it be Bill C-11, and now we're going to talk about C-18. For starters, government has some wildly optimistic expectations on the revenue side here, but there's also a lot of confusion to exactly what this act entails. I've got people's understanding that Google and Meta will block Canadian content, all the way to the government is regulating the internet where I won't be able to get to see Canadian news stories. So the confusion is certainly not helping the conversation. What exactly, before we get to the intent, what exactly is entailed in Bill C-18? Okay, sure. So we can break it down as, as follows. The idea, at least the government's concept, was that they wanted to require large platforms, and really only two platforms, just Google and Meta, to negotiate agreements with Canadian media outlets. And we're talking about pretty much any Canadian media outlet, not just uh, traditional newspapers, but radio stations, uh, television stations, even community and local broadcasters who might not even produce news. They're all included in what's known as an eligible news business. And the idea was, we'll require them to have these negotiations. And the way that they even included them in there, they said, if you even link to their news, not necessarily publish it, just link to it, you're required to do this. You negotiate these agreements. If you, The CRTC, the regulator, will take a look at the agreements. If they think they're good enough, they'll say, fine, we're done. If they say they're not good enough, then you have to go to what's known as an arbitration process in which you make an offer, the media companies make an offer, and they'll choose one or the other. Companies do not want to head to, the internet companies do not want to head to that arbitration process. So that was the basic structure. The problem is that they built the foundation of this law on this idea of just linking to the news, not republishing. If we were talking about you know, copying full text of articles and running ads against it, we'd understandably say, well, of course we need to have conversation about compensation. But this, is, this involves, let's say, in the case of Facebook or Meta, publisher posts a link to their news, drives traffic back to the publisher site, and the government now says that Facebook has to pay to host the link that the publisher posted sending the traffic back to their site. I'm not sure that it makes a, a whole lot of sense. And so those companies have said, we're not willing to do that. And the way the law is structured is if they do not link to anything, they are not captured within the law. And so we face the prospect of lost links on those sites to the news. The news still exists on the original sources. But uh, the removal of the links either from a social media site like Facebook or from a search engine like Google. 
many individuals may bookmark all their favorite media outlets and go to them first before they use Google and or social media, including Facebook. So I guess the argument would be that if those two particular giants swallow up about 80% of the media advertising in the country, consequently we live in a world of trying to be innovative and the world of paywalls and those types of things. So their eyeballs are being drawn to their sites because of the variety that they're able to share. And consequently with eyeballs comes a media, or pardon me, uh, advertising revenue. If not this way, what do you think is appropriate? Okay, so there's a couple of things. You've raised a, a few really interesting points. First off, people who do bookmark all their various sites continue to access those sites directly. Sure. And in, in that case, this law is just irrelevant, quite frankly. Mm-hmm. I think that, no doubt, there has been a shift in ad dollars moving from media to the news sites, to, to the Internet platforms. But it has pra- practically nothing to do with the existence of news on those platforms. You know, Facebook, for example, says that news constitutes about 3% of people's feeds, and it's highly substitutable. People spend the same amount of time on the platform, whether they're clicking on a news link or looking at pictures of friends. So it's not very valuable to the company, um, and it's also just not very important to the company. And that's, you know, it may be important to the news entities, but for the companies themselves, it's just not that relevant. And so their success in digital advertising really doesn't have anything to do with the existence of news on those platforms. So there's a bit of a disconnect in suggesting that somehow these companies now owe it back to the media companies because they created a more successful ad model. Now, I would say just quickly that, you know, of course, we can make the case those companies don't contribute enough to Canada. Uh, I think the best way to deal with that, frankly, is to tax them. Um, if they tax them, that's how we traditionally tell tell companies we want you to contribute more pay more tax, and we can use that those revenues uh, to support whatever we like, including the sector. We could even consider a model similar to what we do in film and TV production, where a percentage of their ad revenue goes into a fund to fund journalism. But by basing this legislation, as the government has done, on links, they've created, uh, I think, a real problem for the companies. I think they've created a real problem for the free flow of information online. Uh, and so we shouldn't be surprised to find the company saying, if this is your model and we're facing potentially hundreds of millions of dollars in liability for links, we're simply going to stop linking. As we refer to both of them as tech giants, there's a difference in compromise and the willingness to compromise between Google and Meta. Google, maybe there's an opportunity to move forward with them. It seems unlikely Meta ever comes back to the table. Does that represent a net loss for the industry already, even though there's no finalized deal? It does. And and I think the the difference in perspective reflects a difference in value of news to those companies. In the case of Meta, as we're saying, there just isn't much value there. So uh, if anything, news has been a bit of a headache. In fact, if you think about the goal of a of a social media site, it's to keep someone on that platform as long as possible. News links do exactly the opposite. They send the user away from the platform. In some ways, it's a net negative for a social media company when they have news because they lose the user who goes somewhere else. Now, in the case of Google, I don't know that the, the instant like hot news is all that important. It doesn't create a ton of ad revenue. But ensuring that they've got a good search in- engine and an index that's as comprehensive as possible is a core part of what that company wants to achieve. And so it has been talking to the government. In fact, it seems to me the government's already backed down on what it said it wanted with this legislation. It said, as we talked about, it wanted those direct negotiations between platforms and the news companies. 
suddenly now the heritage minister, Pablo Rodriguez, has basically inserted himself at the head of the table of those negotiations. And now he's talking directly with Google to see if he can't find a compromise. I was surprised that Minister Rodriguez was surprised that these two companies pushed back. How should we consider lessons learned from the game of chicken that took place or unfolded in Australia? Yeah, that's a great question, and I agree with you. It's, it's frankly inexplicable that the minister would be surprised at how this has come out, unless he just wasn't paying any attention at all over the past year. Um, but I think Australia, in some ways, Canada has taken the wrong lessons from Australia. They kind of looked at it and said, well, at the end of the day, these companies are, are just bluffing and they're going to come back. And I don't think they read the room. I don't think they read the fact that the economy has changed in terms of where these companies sit. They didn't, I think, reflect on the fact that uh, the value of news for these companies have changed over time. And I think they took the wrong lesson in terms of the world watching other com- other countries considering similar kind of legislation or legislation in this area, looking at what takes place in Canada. And they thought that would make it more likely that the companies would, would, would were just bluffing and would cave. And yet I think the opposite is true. I think the fact that other countries are looking at what's happening in Canada means that those companies really, they've drawn a line in the sand. And if they cave in Canada, The message it sends to other countries is that it really is just a bluff and you can go ahead with what you're doing, which suggests that those companies are more likely to stand firm on this issue, essentially trying to stop this common question. What about Australia? I think they're hoping that around the world people may start asking the question, what about Canada? And what happened there with the prospect, as we see, of actual blocked links, because there is a limit to what these companies are willing to do. I'm not sure how to uh, phrase this question, but I wonder how the big advertisers, because that's where the real pressure lies. You know, government's got to stay out of this stuff for the most part, even though I think there is a role for government to catch up with technology and social media, what have you. But what do you think it says about the advertisers, whether it be the banks or the big retailers, the automotive companies or whatnot, that are flocking to these tech giants versus realizing the importance of the free flow of information and the, the, the role the media plays in democracy in this country? Do you think there's any way to gauge or to measure how these massive advertising dollars are flowing this way and how we talk to them to discourage that flow and maybe rechannel or refunnel some of that money? Well, listen, I, I think that advertising goes where it's most effective. And what that demonstrates is that the ad model that those companies provide is a better one. It's more targeted, it's more efficient, it's more effective. And so companies are not running charities when they advertise. They're, they're looking to effectively communicate their message. And so they're going to go where their ad dollars work the best. But you know what? I don't think we have to look at those big companies. We only need to look at the government itself. The Liberal Party has announced, or the government has announced that it won't advertise on Facebook. That's but right. the Liberal Party says it still will. Well, uh, you know, if the government's own party won't stop advertising because it knows it's effective, you know, that what message does that send to those larger advertisers? You know, the government itself is, is or the party is certainly not walking the walk and talking the talk. Sure, but I guess there might be a difference between uh, advertising the sale price on a Dodge Ram versus the campaigning effectiveness of being on social media. So I totally get where you're going. But this is a broad stroke question. Look, governments move at a snail's pace or a glacial pace at the very best of times. Technology and innovation has gone leaps and bounds just in the last, say, decade. It's a completely different world. I don't know who gets to be the arbiter of what is excess profit in the industry. I don't, get, I don't really understand who gets to be the arbiter of what is the truth. But we do know that a lie makes its way all the way around the world before the truth gets out of bed. Where's government's role in trying to ensure there's some 
from good faith in the world of purposeful disinformation versus opinion sharing? Because again, I don't know where that answer lies, but I do know it has posed an entirely different set of circumstances for economic and societal problems. No, well, certainly I agree with you with the challenges that are posed by misinformation. Uh, let's let's be clear: this law does not address that issue. No, if no, anything, no, no. It makes, if anything, it makes it worse. As for the the question of how the government deals with with some of these issues, you're, I think it's it's an exceptionally difficult challenge. In part because you're dealing with what we often refer to as awful but lawful speech. Mm-hmm. We don't like, but stuff that is still legal. And you know, we've got a Charter of Rights and Freedoms. It makes it very difficult to regulate. It requires. I think we do need rules that hold these platforms accountable for the policies that they establish, to take strong stands against certain kinds of content, especially terror content, uh, hate content, child endangerment content. These are the kinds of things that um, we do have rules on the books about that kind of speech, and we should be holding the platforms accountable. We should also be holding them accountable with respect to our data, our personal information. The government has moved very slowly on privacy reform, even as it's expedited these laws, and we need strong anti-competition laws, anti laws to ensure that they don't violate that strong position that they have. But in some ways, the government's ignored some of those issues in favor of things like um, regulating user content in the Bill C-11 context or this news bill. And it, it feels like they've started in the wrong place and they've started really from um, with policies that in many ways have caused more harm than good. We look at competition, and it's, uh, it's critically important, obviously, whether it be related to productivity or otherwise, but look at the Competition Bureau. You know, telecom industry, Canada bred in a $50 million fund because they broke the law, grocery chains and profits and what have you, carrying single-use pods. What do you think the government should talk about or the Competition Bureau should consider with what I think is a growing problem is the consolidation inside the media world here. Very, very few voices when we talk about ownership and stakeholders or shareholders. How big a deal do you think that is, and where should we go from here to make it more equitable, better, and better informed Canadians? Yeah, it's a huge deal. And, you know, we, we're coming off the proposed deal, which apparently now has fallen through, between Post Media and uh, the, Toronto, the owners of the Toronto Star and a bunch of other media outlets, which would have further resulted in consolidation. You know, I do think that that missing as part of this media discussion has been that alongside clearly many closures of of a lot of media outlets has been the emergence of many new digital first online outlets. Uh, So there's been innovation taking place. Mm -hmm. And one of the sad ironies, I think, of this legislation is that it's actually going to hurt some of those more innovative players the most. But it seems to me that many of those companies, they're where perhaps the future lies. They're the ones that are digital first, that are finding new ways to reach audiences, to build community, to replace some of the losses that we've seen. And if anything, I think we ought to be focused on the emergence of some of those models and those voices, because it's quite clear that they're finding ways to succeed. It's not that you can't succeed in the internet space. It's that you can't succeed if you're doing the same thing you did 20 years ago. Yeah, I like sitting down with a broadsheet on the weekend, but my news comes from my phone. By and large. Uh, So it's a strange new world. People are finding out ways to do it. It might be incremental baby steps as opposed to what used to be immediate impact for their traditional delivery model. Uh, Michael, it's been a pleasure to have you on. Would you like to say anything else? Oh, no, that was a wonderful conversation. Thank you so much for having me. Appreciate the time. Take care. Bye-bye. So Dr. Michael Geist. That was good. Okay, let's take a break. When we come back, Dangerous Drivers, another comment about Bill C-18, and whatever you want to talk about, don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go back to the top of the board, line number one. Richard, you're on the air. Hi, 
Hi there, Pat. I'm a first-time caller, and I'm calling uh, about an issue uh, concerning uh, the affordable housing crisis that, that we're in. And so I live here on Pennywell Road, and I've lived there for 18 years. And an organization has come in and bought the property uh, in December, and so they've given me a three-month eviction notice. And uh, so in this housing crisis, I have not been able to find an apartment. I just can't find one. And uh, this landlord has had a hearing and has uh, obtained an eviction from Residential Tenants Association to have a sheriff's officer come up and remove me, but I never received any notice of hearing. Right, so they didn't even notify, they didn't notify me that there, was a, that there was a hearing taking place. So I have appealed them into the Supreme Court of Newfoundland and Labrador as of yesterday, and, and I've asked them for, for an injunction to stop the appeals process until this landlord proves, you know, that they have served me with proper notice, right? And, and that's a part of the act, right? The landlord has to notify me that, you know, they're, they're having a hearing to evict me so I can attend it. And so the residential tendencies have given this landlord all costs, right? So any costs that are incurred in this eviction that includes hiring the sheriff's officer and or removing all the contents of my apartment and putting them into a storage facility, uh, I'm required to pay all of that. And, you know, what upsets me is that this hearing took place on the 22nd, and now I didn't know that it was going on, and, and I sent them July's rent check, and they cashed that check on July the 4th, and they had the results from the Residential Attendance Association on July 4th. So the same day that they had the results of uh, their eviction hearing in which I was absent was the same day that they cashed my rent check, which basically gave them uh, another $600 of uh, uh, my money that they could use in terms of uh, any cost. And so right now I'm in a race, you know, basically between the Supreme Court uh, um, offering me protection in, in... providing an injunction until the landlord approves his statement notice. And so they're in a race with the sheriff's office and their process in how quickly the sheriff's office can actually get to my house and forcefully evict me, right, so that if the Supreme Court doesn't come in with that injunction, you know, within the next few days, then the sheriff's officer can come up and remove me, and then I will have to fight this illegal eviction from the streets. When is your eviction date, Richard? Right, so, uh, oh, so it was immediately, right, so I, uh, uh, so I received uh, a notice that was registered mail, and when I went to the post office and I picked it up, it was the eviction notice from the residential tendencies, you know, that resulted from, from the hearing that I knew nothing about, and so that was July the 6th, which was Friday past, right, so we're only talking about just a few days ago, and uh, the, the eviction is immediate, right, so that... Whenever this organization can get through the process at the sheriff's office, and as soon as they can get the sheriff's officer to come up, then I'm out in the street. But I, but I never had a fair hearing, you see. And and uh, um, this landlord was supposed to provide me with notice that they were having a hearing. And uh, you know, so I sent them the rent check because I knew nothing about this eviction, and they cashed it. 
played, and, and I mean, this is only one of the issues, you know, that I have that I have outlined in my appeal. But it seems to me uh, that this is part of a of a bigger problem that's going on in this city, and, and um, these organizations are moving in and they're buying the affordable housing units and they're forcing out the low-income tenants and then they're raising up the rent. And so what's happening is, is that the low-income tenants are being put out and they really don't have anywhere to go because at this point in time there are no apartments that I can rent. The only place I have to go basically is in the street. Uh, and, you know, it's a homeless shelter, right? So, I mean, this is going to increase the number of homeless people and it seems to me, you know, that the protections that are supposed to be in place, you know, to to protect us from, you know, these these illegal evictions are not really there, right? And, and, and I mean, I think that people believe that this is there, but it's not until they actually need it do they find out that there's not a lot there for us, right, uh, uh, in terms of protecting us from homelessness. And um, it seems that the system is gearing up, you know, to help the people when they go homeless, but they're not doing anything to prevent us from going homeless. They're only willing to help us after we're homeless. And that just seems like an illogical approach, but I believe that it's all a part of a reorganization. And, uh, of course, I've had time to to think about this so, and, and so I you know my opinion is that I mean we know that Newfoundland and Labrador we have been fighting against our minimum wage now for years because it's not a livable wage and I believe that when the government invited all of these new these new immigrants and God love them because I don't blame the immigrants whatsoever and I'm glad that the immigrants are here I like that they add color but they add color to our city and so I'm not blaming them whatsoever, but I'm blaming the government for inviting these people in and not uh, providing, you know, the accommodations in which they're supposed to be living in. And so um, what's happening is these new immigrants are willing to work these lower-paying jobs in Newfoundlanders and Labradorians have been fighting against now for a decade. They're willing to work them, and there's a reorganization in place so that the people who have not been working these jobs, who have, you know, been living a somewhat comfortable life as a poor person, right? So I'm a poor person, but I still live a reasonable life. They are, are pushing us out and they're bringing in the new immigrants who are working these jobs, which, which satisfies business and it also, you know, benefits the government, uh, you know, because it's it's a lot more affordable to house low-income people into uh, a homeless shelter than it is to pay rent for all of those people in the city. Right? So this reorganization saves the government a lot of money. They no longer have to pay rent for me because I no longer have a place to live. Vacancy in and around here is 3% or less. Uh, and support, there's different levels of support for different immigrants based on where they came from, fast tracks, you know, refugees, skilled trades. There's a bunch of different things to that. Uh, I don't know if there's a big upside for the government, but look, there's one thing I think, if we're being fair, is that the federal government's targets on immigration has 
complicated and already complicated problem with housing. And that doesn't make anybody a bad person to do math, because if we had X number of people looking for homes, the country's done a pretty poor job in keeping up with the rental market, for instance. Even in the world of rent, the thought is that we'd have to build as many homes in the next 10 years as we have in the last 50 to accommodate the ambitious immigration targets. Back in Canada yesterday said that part of the con- one of the contributing factors, which are multifaceted inside of inf- uh, inflation, also includes immigration. So again, we're not being mean. We're talking about what's happening. And I don't know if your theory is accurate or fair or real or not, and it's not my place to say it one way or the other, but it does come with a complication in housing. It truly does. And getting out in front of this and figuring it out, I'm with you. On your, your own personal instance, if it's not being treated fairly and you talk about whether or not you're going to get an injunction in time, do you have any reason to believe or has anybody said anything to you to have hope that there will be a, a quick turnaround in the court system before you're on the street? Well, I mean, uh, so um, when I filed the application, I filed a motion, you know, to uh, to expedite, you know, uh, uh, my my appeal based on the fact that this is a, a time sensitive situation so that if the court doesn't react in a timely manner then I will become one of the homeless people and as I said I've lived in my apartment now for 18 years I've always paid my rent and this landlord in this eviction hearing did not provide any reason why they were evicting me and 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 that's a problem because it gives a lot of power to the landlord to discriminate against the tenants if they don't like their tenants or whatever they don't have a have reason they can just kick them out and it seems to me that the power of eviction is a lot greater than, you know, uh, you know, a tenant's ability to move out into a market in which we don't have anywhere to move. And so I just kind of feel like that this landlord is exploiting this, uh, he's exploiting me, and he's exploiting the market, and his only basis, you know, for this entire thing and putting me homeless is to re-rent the apartment. Uh, and so I'm actually, uh, I've been in this firm now for quite some time because the rent is pretty cheap. I'm only paying $600 a month, right, mm-hmm. which is, yeah. is awesome. And so, but um, this landlord has, uh, I know, uh, from an extra neighbor, they said they saw an ad for the apartment that was going to be relisted for 950 right? So this landlord, uh, he stands to gain $350 a month. I mean, you can buy a car. Right. You can buy a car out of that. And if I am evicted, so very recently I have come into Newfoundland and Labrador housing subsidy, right? So they, so I do have money, right? I have money to rent an apartment. I just can't find one, you know, that that would be reasonably uh, reasonably accommodating. But if I become evicted, you see, Newfoundland and Labrador housing is no longer going to have to pay me that funding. And England Sport is no longer going to have to pay rent for me. And you're telling me that the government is not benefiting from this, but it's obvious that they are going to benefit quite they're going to save a lot of money if i end up in the street the government will well i'm not going to get anything and my possessions i mean i've lived there for 18 years i have a full apartment full of possessions right things that i have uh, and so i have the diploma of applied arts for accounting and i've won the career development award for academic achievement so i am i am very good with money and that's why i'm able to survive on such a low income and still you know be able to live but, I mean, I can't live a decent life if I'm living in the street. I understand. And nobody wants you to be living in the street. Homelessness comes with a societal and financial price tag, and which is it. certainly more than $600 a month. Yeah. Uh, Richard, keep me in the loop. Let me know what happens. But I do have to get to the news. I'm late for that right. newscast break. But okay, please do let me know. Okay, thanks for your time. Thanks, Richard. Take care. Bye-bye. All right, for those of you in the queue, stay right there. We'll get to you after the news. Don't go away. 
Join Greg Smith weeknights at 5.45 as he chats with local musicians about life, inspiration shows, and new music. Tune into Soundcheck, your backstage pass to the local music scene on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Rob, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Good morning to you. Take my call. No problem. I called from uh, Grand Falls, Windsor, uh, probably about 18 months to maybe even two years ago, as far back, with uh, concerns about uh, people driving up the wrong way up the highway in, in, coming into Grand Falls and Windsor from the east, uh, in which we had a couple of fatalities. Um, since that time, Patty, uh, I started a Facebook page, uh, Grand Falls Community Matters, where people could uh, report such instances. And again, uh, from that time till now, and, and most recent, we've had uh, two to three more instances of the same things having occurred. Uh, I've since relocated to British Columbia for health reasons, but I felt it was important to maintain this, uh, this page for this very reason. Um, in just the last couple of days, uh, there was a report of, again, somebody almost having to go out into the ditch to avoid uh, oncoming traffic that was coming up the wrong way. Uh, I know at one point uh, the Minister of Transportation was supposed to have come to Grand Falls to look at the situation. Uh, he met with uh, Chris Tibbs, uh, but I don't think anything was done. I don't think anything has been changed. And again, if we change nothing, nothing is going to change. So I just wanted to bring your attention to this and give you an update as to uh, what's actually happening. And, uh, you know, I, I don't know where the people there can go to protect themselves for this. And, uh, and I'm hoping that we can draw some attention to this again. Uh, my understanding is that there's a new member of, uh, or a new uh, Minister of Transportation that uh, perhaps needs to be brought on board with this and, and have this uh, reevaluated once again because there is uh, there are ways of, of mitigating here, whether it's engineering some of the, uh, the uh, issues out of the problem or if, if it's just increased signage and uh, more policing, uh, perhaps even dropping the speed limit so that uh, there's a quicker response time by uh, by the police or uh, at least more time to avoid being struck if you are coming down the right way. So uh, I just wanted to bring some attention to that again. I'm glad you did. So I can picture my mind's eye why this would be a dangerous area. So is different, more detailed or appropriate signage, is that a, a simple solution that's right there and readily available or does it require more than that? Well, in my opinion, Patty, I, I think signage would be a the first step. <clears throat> now, it, it is not the end all to it, uh, but certainly it would uh, increase awareness that you are going in the wrong direction. And uh, we have a lot of people, especially during the, the, the summer season and, and, again, during the holidays when people are coming in the shop, such as Christmas, <clears throat> then you also have the issue then of, of roads being slippery or whatever. So... I mean, the, the chances of accidents uh, increase under those conditions. So, I mean, uh, it's been suggested to me that we need to have some signage with, uh, with lights on them that flash that say you're going the wrong way. And, I mean, some simple solutions such as that with today's technology don't seem too far-fetched in, in the meantime before, you know, we're able to take care of this problem once and for all without having any more fatalities. 
would re-engineering those areas be a significant amount of work, or is there a couple of on-ramp, off-ramp solutions that would be, you know, the be-all and end-all and fix it once for all? Re-engineering would, would certainly uh, take care of the problem so that you actually had a, a full clover leaf there. But as it's constructed, we don't have that. Uh, and I don't know if the amount of traffic that comes through that way would warrant that, but certainly it uh, it should be investigated. And, and there are some, perhaps some even more simple solutions. And, and again, uh, you know, the placement of barriers to prevent anybody from going up the wrong way, um, that, that's certainly one solution. And again, signage is, is another solution. And, uh, you know, together between between all of the potential solutions that are there, there has to be something that, uh, you know, that we can put in place to protect the public. Well, there should be because the potential to be going the wrong way and nowhere to uh, avoid any what could be disastrous and tragic in the collisions is obviously very real. Uh, anything else you'd like to say this morning? No, I'd just like to uh, encourage all the, the, the folks in Grand Falls and Windsor to contact their, uh, their MHA, Chris Tibbs, and uh, offer him support in uh, trying to get this uh, taken care of. Chris also feels that the, the speed limit should, uh, uh, in, in, as I understand it, should be dropped uh, in that area coming through. It's going to save maybe you know a couple of minutes or add a couple of minutes to someone's travel but that's a small price to pay when you uh when you consider that somebody has already uh we've already had two fatalities there and we've already had the potential for more so you know i think everybody needs to offer support to chris and, and let's try and get this mitigated once and for all sure and the new minister of that uh, portfolio of transportation and infrastructure is john abbott these days who took it from elvis loveless uh i appreciate the time rob thanks for this thanks very much patty you're welcome take care okay. bye-bye okay. all right we'll get a uh, relatively quick one in before we go to the break and appreciate the patience of those remaining in the queue let's go to line three sandra you're on the air uh, hi, um, I'm going to let you speak to the owner of, uh, we have a missing cat, uh, his name is Tony, so he's going to give you the details, thank you. Okay. Oh, hi Patty, uh, I'm Tony, uh, my little furry friend went loose um, yesterday, and uh, would really appreciate it, maybe give a shout out to your listeners, and uh uh, her name is Gordon. Yes, she is a she, but she's uh, named after the, the late great um, Gordon Downey. And I, she went missing in the Subla Street area and would really like to get her back. So if any of your listeners have come across a, a gray uh, cat with a white belly and a very nice temperament, I'd uh, appreciate it if you put that out there. When did Gordon get away? Gordon got away around 4 o'clock last night. Okay. Or the evening. So in and around the Sulva Street area here in the city of St. John's, Gordon is a little gray cat with a white belly. If you see Gordon, you want them to call you or call us? Yeah. Uh, can I give my number? You sure can. That, yeah. It's uh, obviously 709 uh, 765-8538 and my name is Tony and uh, there's a reward offered and just like to get it back Tony's at 765-8538 fingers crossed Tony 
Thank you for having me. You're welcome. Take care. Good luck. You too. Alrighty, bye-bye. All right, so if you're in that area, keep your eyes peeled. Uh, let's take a break. When we come back, we're going to get a reaction from the opposition critic from Health Community Service, as Paul Din, about the finally delivered report regarding towards recovery and the implementation of where we are on the 54 recommendations that were first tabled in June of 2017. Then Cindy's there to talk about the public service health care plan. Of course, that's in reaction to a call we had from Debbie Ryan not so long ago. Okay, let's take that break. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number four. Say good morning to the PC member for Tops of Paradise. The opposition health critic is Paul Din. Paul, you're on the air. Thank you, Patty, for taking my call. No problem. I uh, No, I wanted to call in today because I, I know that we uh, many people out there are waiting uh, for the report on Towards Recovery, uh, dealing with mental health. And, of course, that, uh, that uh, report had 54 recommendations in it, and, and we, we waited anxiously for... Uh, for the evaluation report to come out, and uh, when I saw it, I uh, I was uh, well disappointed really in in terms of uh, the content uh, or the detail that's lacking in the report. Uh, it does address some of the uh, crisis, uh, short-term crisis intervention uh, mechanisms that are in place, services and programs, and, and you know, and and to to a greater degree, they're they're doing well. Uh, but I think uh, where this report is lacking is when it talks about future challenges and, uh, you know, uh, coming forward, It, I believe long-term care, long-term continuity of care, which we know has been, uh, you know, lobbied for for a long time. You know, the, Christy Allen out in front of this building for 136 or 35 Mondays have been out there lobbying for this. And to see this report, and it talks about future challenges, and I believe there's only one sentence that talks about it in there, to improve access longer-term mental supports in psychiatry. That's a future priority. That's listed as a future priority. When it's been a priority for so long here, you know, and uh, I, I was disappointed. And when you look at the report and you flip to the appendix, and I was expecting to see uh, greater detail in the appendix as to how each and every uh, – action item or recommendation was uh, was addressed and you you get a list with all green tick marks every every item has a green tick mark next to it, which gives certainly the impression that oh done all completed and well done and when you look a little deeper into the report you you find out that that's that's not actually the fact uh, you know the case in many of these uh, recommendations you know uh, i just point out a couple you know about prior to looking at the recruitment of two permanent full-time psychiatrists in labrador and that and we know from in the in this report itself it talks that they have four on call so they they haven't met that they, they don't have the full-time psychiatrists another example was about the budget Increasing the budget by April 2022, the health care budget that goes towards health, uh, mental health and addiction would be up to 9%. And only in a recent interview, we, we heard from the minister who couldn't tell if that was reached or not. But yet there's a green tick mark. So when we're dealing with critical issues like a person's mental health and addictions, you know, you want to be more open and accountable and transparent in indicating where we are and where we have to go. Yes, there's some good things happening. There's no no doubt about that. 
But when I flipped to the recommendations in this this document, I would have expected to see some greater detail on how each and every one of these uh, is met or is being met or will be met or, or what the status is. And, and it's, well, it's just not there. And for, for, for those people out there, those people out there dealing with mental health crisis and mental health issues and that, <coughs> excuse me, who, uh, who have been waiting on this report, you know, to, to get some sense of hope as that the issues are being addressed, I, I think they were sadly uh, disappointed. When you talk about long-term access to mental health, I think there's a lot of these big catch-all phrases where yeah. it means one thing to you, one thing maybe to the minister, one thing to Christy, one thing to me. For me, long-term access is as much about continuity of care yep. than it is almost anything else. Now, there's lots of different facets too, but when you think about it, how do you think about long-term access? Well, if someone goes in and has their crisis intervention and, uh, and they're successful in that, and some are not. Well, some need to to have have that care on a regular basis. They either need to see a psychologist or a psychiatrist, or there has to be resources there or programs there that they can go to and make a connection on a regular basis and and, and continue to uh, to deal with their issues. You know, when you go to these uh, crisis intervention pieces and that, and the doorways and bridging the gap. Yeah, they deal with the immediate needs, and 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 what I'm hearing from individuals, some of them are then left left the deal on their own. So it's having that connection there that they can avail of on a regular basis, uh, you know, throughout their their struggles. And uh, you know, some of that requires psychologists, psychiatrists, and as we know, we're, we're lacking there. And it's also an area where I feel that psychiatric nursing would would help. So you know, having that uh, continuity of care is uh, is a big piece. And uh, uh, it doesn't seem we don't seem to be there when I look at this report. And uh, you know, when it's listed as a future priority, I think we're missing the boat. It should be a current priority and it should have been a past priority as well. The advent of virtual care is a big part of the reality going forward for your physical well-being, for your mental health. There's, you know, making reference to uh, the Provincial LifeWise warm line, yeah. the increase of 250%. So you ask a question, if, is that good or is that bad? Which I think is a pretty fundamentally sound question. In your view, is it good or does it reflect the need of so many more people in the province requiring care and virtual is maybe possibly the only place they can get it? Well, well, this is this is to my point about the report in terms of it lacking detail. You know, it tells us that these numbers are increased, right? Uh, but why? Is it because it's an uh, increase in uh, people needing a service? Is it because uh, they, they've done well, government's done well in promoting the service? You know, unless we have the detail on, okay, the, the total number that have called in, you know, what did they call in on? Are they repeat callers? Were they, were they calling the wrong number? Did they just get referred? You know, that's the detail that we're missing here in this, in this report. Uh, what were the types of issues that people were calling in on, the categories, and, and are they actually being helped at the end of the day? What is the outcome? So when when you got a figure that says yes we uh, this this program has been utilized more more than it ever was <laughs> you you still left one okay is that good or bad you know is it because the situation with mental health in our province is getting more dire or is it because uh, more people are aware of the the, uh, the service and that's that's not evident in the report it, it doesn't tell you that yeah so uh, 
Interestingly enough, and I think a good thing, is that actually the Minister of Health and Community Services, Tom Osborne, is going to join us right after the news where we can do some additional follow-up, which is important. My yeah. thought here is I'm not so, so sure it's, if it's good or bad, but what it does not encapsulate is outcomes. So that when we don't understand whether or not anyone had any success, was satisfied with, or got the help they needed, or on a different path with a referral, or like if we don't know the outcomes, then it's just numbers. It seems alarming that it's a 250% increase, yeah. but people might actually be getting the help. But until we can measure outcomes, then I'm not so sure we really get a better understanding of exactly where we are. No, you're exactly right, and, that, and that's that's what I'm saying is missing here. And you know, and there's some instances where they talk where they indicate, oh, you know, 70 odd percent said it was excellent, and so on. You know, in this uh, from brief surveys, but again, we don't know how many people were surveyed for that particular service, if if it's a valid number or not, and to what extent they're saying it was excellent. Uh, you know, those are the details that are missing. So. How do you address the issue if you don't have that finer detail in terms of uh, uh, what people are saying? Yeah, I mean, I'm not exactly sure how we even arrive at that measure and what even constitutes a positive outcome. So, I mean, I'm not trying to say that there's a very fundamental table of metrics that we can apply to every single call inside that 250% increase and say, okay, it worked. Worked how, why, how do we calculate it? So I'm not pretending it's easy, but I do think it's important to measure success. Uh, Before we run out of time, I know that your office is also speaking to need of an update in paradise regarding the high school. I'll let you have a swing at that before I take a news break. Well, well, you know, we, we know that there was an announcement again in the uh, news there last week on a, on a high school in another community, and, and you know, that's fine. In Portugal uh, Cove? Yeah, but I mean, at the end of the day, when I look at this, and this is something I've uh, lobbied for, well, since I was on Paradise Council back in 2013, continue to do so. 2014-15, uh, uh, the school district had this as one of the top priorities, and that hasn't changed, a high school in Paradise or a high school in the district, and I'm going to continue to bang that drum because... We have, uh, you know, I have huge numbers of students in in my district, and they're they're bussed out to uh, to Holy Spirit and to Mount Pearl Senior High, and those schools, those schools themselves would benefit from a high school in Paradise because it would reduce the uh, class loads, and it would also add give more opportunity for extracurricular activity for for those students. So it's a benefit to the whole area, and it was at the top of the list. Uh, the current government, when it came in in 2015, Liberal government deferred it indefinitely, and it's time now. It's time now for government to tell us when that school will be built and uh, give some timelines or update on it, because to you know it's been on the t- one of the top of the list for so long. Uh, how come we're not there yet? You know, that's the question for residents in my district, you know, with so many young kids and children and families there and, uh, you know, having them bust out now to to community schools that are are starting to bust at the seams as well. It it makes no sense to me, you know, and, uh, you know, it's one of the fastest growing communities, if not the fastest growing community in in Atlantic Canada. And I I guarantee a CBS is close behind as well. And that's what my district takes in. And uh, a high school there is needed. It was needed, it is still needed, and it will forever be needed. 
and uh, government needs to st- stand up now and say, okay, here's where it's more important. We're taking it off the deferred list that they put on almost 10 years ago, and let's, let's get down to it, and let's make the announcement that we're going to look at it. I appreciate the time, okay. Paul. Thank you. Thank you. All the best. You too. Bye-bye. It's Paul Den, uh, PC member of Tops of Paradise, the official critic for the shadow minister, as some people like to call it, for health community services. Okay, and as advertised, the minister responsible, Tom Osborne, is coming up right after this newscast. But interestingly, in the, the announcement of a school, a high school for Portugal Cove, parents at Prince Wales Collegiate are asking government for some pretty fundamental information as to why it's needed. The department itself did not have it on its list as a community that needed this type of educational infrastructure, so they're looking for more answers on that front. And fair enough, when we talk about whether it be $33 million, $3 million, $300 million, why exactly something is being done, why it's being done in one location or another, that should be information that the government has on hand. And if they do, they should be willing to share it with those parents and maybe share it with us. Let's take a break. When we come back, Minister of Health Community Services, Tom Osborne. Don't go away. Get lost in the music of legendary artists like Elton John, The Beatles, and more. Join Claudette Barnes every Sunday from 12 to 1 p.m. and relive fond memories through the power of music with Sunday Melodies on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Say good morning to the Liberal member for Waterford Valley. He's the Minister of Health Community Services, Tom Osborne. Minister Osborne, you're on the air. Well, thanks, uh, Patty, for the opportunity to speak. And uh, I guess the unique opportunity to uh, um, provide some insight following the the critics' comments. Um, I do want to talk about some of the successes uh, that have been identified and and achieved through uh, Towards Recovery. Uh, and some of the challenges uh, that still remain. There's still work to be done. But, you know, I also, I mean, the background, an all-party committee was put together uh, a number of years ago to identify the the more immediate priorities uh, towards recovery came from that. Um, you know, if you're building a house, you, you build a foundation first. You can't put the roof on to keep the rain out before the foundation is built. And I think the all-party committee did an excellent job in identifying the more immediate priorities and how we build uh, the foundation and, and then build a solid structure around it. And towards recovery is the start of that. Uh, you know, so it's a little disingenuous to say, well, this is not done yet and that's not done yet. I think the all-party committee laid a path forward uh, towards recovery, identified uh, the 54 recommendations and what needed to be done. And coming out of the towards recovery uh, document, because we've had enormous success over the last five years. Are we there? Not yet. Is there more to be done? Absolutely. Uh, You know, long-term mental health is certainly one of the next steps to ensure that we strengthen that. There has been some uh, things put in place for long-term mental health in towards recovery and in this year's budget, but there's much more work to be done. Um, You know, to say that it's not done yet uh, by the critic is a little disingenuous because what was outlined by the All-Party Committee and towards recovery, uh, we have made great strides and, and We've, you know, I think we've achieved uh, what was set out 
and we still have much more to achieve. To use your analogy and reference to the budget, to build a home, I first pour the foundation. But what I also do while that concrete is setting is I create a budget. So inside the pledge to move from 5.7% of the total annual mental or uh, annual healthcare budget to 9% by April of last year, you were unable to say whether or not we've achieved that. But back in May of 2022, they were showing only 7.6 had been achieved. So do we not have the ability to produce a number, a percentage number, as to how much has been uh, enveloped for mental health care? I've asked uh, staff to do that. So one of the challenges, Patty, I mean, the, the warm line for first responders, you know, some will say, well, yes, that is mental health uh, spending. Some will say that it's not, you know, it's, it's very subjective. But you know, should that be included in mental health spending? So I've been advised by staff that, you know, we are certainly at near, maybe even above the 9%. Uh, so I've asked them to look at the numbers. One of the things identified as a future or as one of the challenges in towards recovery is that government departments tend to work in silos. But uh, health and community services is not the only department that has provided funding for mental um, mental health services, for example. So we are looking uh, to try to, to get that number based on the increases in this year's budget. Um, you know, keeping in mind that there was a significant increase in this year's budget, uh, much of it in, in uh, health and community services. So we've asked for, I've asked staff to, to look at those numbers and reach across departments that have also uh, put money into mental health services, such as the Home First Policy, for example, um, and so on. So, you know, I'm being told that we believe we're, we're at or above the 9%, but I, you know, I, I want to be accurate when I say that. So, you know, I apologize for being cautious, but I, I want to see the numbers before I say that we're above the 9%. I'm being told that we believe we could be. Yeah, I'm, I assume that includes justice, education, child youth, senior development. So I can understand that. And it'd be nice to get a firm grip because that pledge, everything, unfortunately, money makes the world go round. Money allows for policies to be expanded and offerings to be expanded and improvements to be made. One of the things that I do find as a curious part of all of this is virtual care. Now, I I think virtual care absolutely has a place in physical care and mental well-being, but even in the provincial LifeWise life warm line, an increase of 250% from 450 in 2016-17 to 1,615 in 21-22. Mr. Din asks a question, which I think is a good one. Is this good or bad? I believe it's good, and, and uh, you know, 30 years ago, there were very few uh, services, for example, for, for mental health and addictions. Uh, it's been growing over the last five years. The effort, the investment, the uh, the initiatives put in place are enormous. Again, when I say that, I, I want to uh, caution it by saying we still have much work to be done, uh, especially in in terms of long term mental health. But you know, we've we've done work in in long term mental health. We're not there yet. But that, you know. Um, Virtual access was not there five years ago. So the fact that we've got, um, you know, an increasing, continuous increasing, A is, you know, part of it is the, the 
uh, addictions and, and, you know, uh, substance use and the increase in, in opioids. Um, so that, that can be part of it. Part of it is the fact that, um, you know, we are reducing the stigma and saying that if you've got diabetes, it's a health issue. If you've got mental health issues, it's a health issue. And working to reduce the stigma, more and more people are willing to uh, say openly they have mental health issues because the stigma is is being reduced. Yeah. The fact that services are available and we're educating the public that services are available, you're, you're going to get an increase in the usage of those services. So is it good? Yes, we're providing a service to people that wasn't there before. We're reducing the stigma um, so that people are more comfortable and confident in accessing services. So I think it is a good thing. In other areas of healthcare, like, for instance, the joint replacement and the day surgeries and wait times for a cataract surgery. And other, like we have benchmarks where we can measure success of policy. We have uh, some way to measure outcomes. I'm not so sure we have the same application inside of mental health. So, for instance, if you think it's a good thing that the virtual offerings have been helpful for folks, folks who don't have opportunities for in-person services or counseling or treatment, how do we apply some metrics regarding outcomes? How do we measure outcomes? How do we know if we're on the right track? Because just having a service in place doesn't mean that the people that have interacted with that uh, warm line got what they needed or are any closer to uh, long-term uh, access to mental health care. So what, how do we understand outcomes? How do we measure? Well, we are starting, and, and it's a valid point, and I take that point, and, and, you know, we should be looking at benchmarks. So, you know, it's a valid point, a valid suggestion, and, and something that we can work towards. But if you look at, you know, uh, 6,300 families were referred to the Strongest Families Institute, 100% rating it as excellent or very good, 99% uh, confirming that they learned useful techniques. So we are starting to measure are we there? That's part of where we need to, you know, uh, better identify, you know, the numbers of individuals and 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 establish, um, you know, those baselines so that we can actually measure uh, the successes. But, you know, again, looking at the all-party committee that was put uh, put in place six years ago or or thereabouts and outlining uh, at the path forward, and then the Towards Recovery that has done five years of work, I don't think it is fair to say uh, that a great deal hasn't been accomplished because it has. Um, and I'd be the first to admit that a great deal more still needs to be accomplished. But the work of that all-party committee has been carried out. What does access to long-term health care mean to you? And how, like, what's even the process to improve? Because it's one key focus area inside the conversation of mental health care. So when someone says long-term health, mental health care, what do you think that means? Well, there's a number of areas. You know, we've got the stepped care model now um, where uh, we can step up or step down the, the level of service that is provided to individuals. So that is in part uh, part of addressing long-term uh, mental health you know when when you look at the um uh, we've we've announced just recently and and we are going to look at uh, uh you know putting in place um services across the province but we've announced just recently uh the stepped care model um uh, you know actual bricks and mortar in st john's 
Um, and that will deal with long-term mental health. Uh, there's an investment in this year's budget of, of $5 million, which is uh, to support the establishment of the step-down facilities and community-based wraparound supports. Exactly uh, what does that mean, and how does it improve long-term access? So, you know, if somebody is coming out of uh, the Waterford Hospital or the new the new facility, the new mental health and addictions facility, which will also support uh, long-term mental health, and, and you know, uh, the, the plan is that it will better support long-term mental health than what is there today. But when you're coming out of that facility, instead of you walk out the doors and what next, the step-down facility will provide... Uh, uh, the opportunity somebody may be there for three months, maybe six months, uh, as they integrate back into, um, you know, the, the, their home environment or other supportive environments, uh, including, you know, wraparound community supports. Um, if they need to be stepped up, the stepped care model uh, will help them step back up again or step into other services. So uh, I'm not going to say uh, that we have all of the long-term mental health issues resolved, but coming out of towards recovery, that is one of the future challenges that have been identified where we need to do more work. And, you know, the focus coming out of, of towards recovery is uh, is going to be uh, in large part on long-term mental health. You know, the, the wellness, uh, you know, we've addressed Again, more work still needs to be done, uh, but we've addressed some of the, the wellness and the immediate needs through things like Bridge the Gap and the ACT teams, FACT teams, mobile crisis teams, the warm lines uh, through the, the Towards Recovery. Uh, we have, you know, there are services available, uh, doorways. Um, is exactly that. It provides you the doorway into the services that you need. Um, you know, we identify what services you need, and, and the doorways opens the door to those services. Um, but again, we need to build more capacity and more services around uh, long-term mental health uh, issues. I'd like to get through a couple of very quick ones here. Though. So a pilot project for registered psychiatric nurses. We know what they mean in the mental health care system in other provinces, graduates of accredited universities. Why do we just skip pilot and go right to amendments so that the college can regulate these particular healthcare disciplines? Well, that is coming, um, and I did an interview just recently to say that, you know, to call it a pilot project gives us the ability to put them in place immediately. They're not yet registered, uh, so the, the pilot program for that will allow us to hire uh, in, in each of the regions in the province uh, registered psychiatric nurses. Um, the, the next step, and, you know, I want to be cautious, again, because... You know, the critics will say, well, you told us it was coming in in November and it, it didn't come in until April. But the focus, the aim is to to get the legislation put in place. Um, I'm hoping for November. Again, I want to be cautious. I, I'm, I'm not going to promise November, but that is the aim, to have the legislation there so that this can be a regulated profession in the province. But, you know... To, to put a pilot program in place, even before the, the profession is regulated, we can start hiring uh, through the, the uh, 
the pilot program. I have so much more that I'd like to uh, discuss with you, so maybe we can organize time with your office for next week because I've got another dozen questions, but I have to take a break and get another call, but I appreciate your time this morning. My pleasure. I'll have Jennifer reach out to your producer and, and absolutely set up time for next week. Please do. Thank you. Thanks, Patty. Take care. Bye-bye. It's Tom Osborne, Bye-bye. Minister of Health Community Services. Last break. Cindy, you're up next. Talk about the public service health care plan. Welcome back to the program. I don't know. Cindy was there, and as soon as we came out of the commercial break, she was no longer there. But it's in reference to Debbie Ryan's call earlier about some of the confusion regarding the public service health care plan. Debbie did follow up with me with an email with some specific, uh, uh, specific bullets where we're going to try to get her some answers. I'm not so sure if that's going to be Cindy today or me doing follow-up on the heels of the program, but hopefully Cindy can join us. If not today, then tomorrow. Regarding towards recovery, and look, I completely understand when the way we get answers to questions from politicians can be frustrating. Absolutely. We try to dig in and get the best we can in a factual manner because these are important conversations. So... Some things become a bit more nuanced and complex. For instance, outcomes. I'm really genuinely curious how people think about that conversation and how you measure outcomes because it's, it's much simpler in other areas of healthcare, right? Like dealing with a surgical backlog for joint replacement. We can see whether or not the day surgeries are working. We can see whether or not expanding the operations to St. Anthony eventually into Carbonair is working because we'll see how quickly the backlog has been dealt with versus any other time frame that we can use prior to the introduction of this policy. So that's where we're going there. And maybe people who are some of the long-time advocates help us understand what we should be thinking about, talking about, asking about, and things like that. Uh, before we run out of time this morning, let's go to three. Cindy, you're on the air. Hi there. Hi. Um, so I listened uh, to your show every day, and I heard your caller earlier this morning about the public service health care plan. So I thought I could help provide some clarity. Please do. Um, just for some background, background information, the Public Service Health Care Plan is an optional health care plan for all federal public service employees and their dependents. And that also includes RCMP officers and their families, military members and their families, and federally appointed judges. So um, the Sun Life... Uh, was was administering the public service health care plan. And in 2023 and this year, the contract was awarded to Canada Life. So what has happened is that a a group called the National Association of Federal Retirees, which is a group of 170,000 strong, of which I'm a member, and I recently became very involved in their advocacy, so I am a director for Branch 86, Uh, started the huge process of contacting all members in whatever way they chose to be contacted when they became members. So if you had signed up for email notifications, you got to do your positive enrollment by email. If you signed up for paper only, you got paper in the mail. Um, But you were only contacted correctly if you updated your information with the National Association of Federal Retirees. That means you would have had to let them know that you change your address or you have a new phone number. So it's definitely been a worry to me that some people may have been missed. With respect to the lady that called in, um, I think she called in about her mother. Is that correct? 
That's right. Yep. And her need yeah. to get her, her prescriptions. So I don't think people really care one way or the other about who the provider is. The problem that Debbie and others are having is simply even being able to contact Canada Life, period. Yeah. And so this is what has happened because now there are so many people that can't get in touch with Canada Life because all of a sudden they're overwhelmed with phone calls because either a positive enrollment hasn't been done or if it's been done, something has been missed. And one of the things that I realized when I did positive enrollment for myself and my husband is that um, you would have had a, a card, a paper card that you would have given to your pharmacist that would have had a your personal ID number, certificate number, and also a plan number. And that plan number for years was the same. It was like uh, a bunch of zeros and fives. Now your plan number, has, it's a five-digit number. That number has changed depending on the month of your birth. So, for instance, my birthday falls is in June, and my plan number now is 52113 as opposed to 00555, which was always the number. So if they did positive enrollment, and it said your positive enrollment was successful when you did it online, you would have been um, you would have been sent what your new plan number is. So if that's any help to her, uh, or if she needs any assistance with that, I'd be happy to help her out. Well, do you mind if I share your email address with Debbie? Yeah, that's no problem at all. Okay, I'll do exactly yeah. that, and I'll do some follow up as well. But I really appreciate you trying to fill in some of the blanks today, Cindy, and I will share your contact uh, info or your coordinates with Debbie right after the show. Okay, great. Thank you very much. Thanks for this, Cindy. Okay, bye-bye. You're welcome. Bye-bye. All right, uh, good show today. Big thanks to everyone who supports the program, and we will indeed pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. We'll talk in the morning. Bye-bye.